0: Welcome to episode one seventy three of the Grip Strip Podcast, the Young Motorsports Icon Edition of the Grip Strip Podcast. Uh, my name is philip Matthew. I'm your host, and I'm here with my co-host, the uh, former iRacing Indy five hundred champion, computer genius, a gentleman and a scholar. His name is Josh Fine. What's going on, brother?
1: Hey, I'm doing great, Phil, and glad you introduced me as yeah, one of the champions of the iRacing Indy five hundred and you get to say that in front of one of our special guests here, Mr. Young Tommy Kendall.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's this is a uh I think something I've looked forward to or I've wanted to happen for many years, not just because of my my fandom of this man as a great one of the greatest race car drivers I've ever seen, but then one of the just coolest people, and one of the funniest, and just the way that uh even in post racing retirement or coming back in and then getting back out that he's still the same genuine guy um doesn't have the Zach Morris hair anymore like he did back when he was young Tom Kendall, but he still is the original t k it's tom Tommy Kendall, thank you so much for your time at your construction site over there uh to come on. Uh, the GSP.
2: Well, I have to give you. Uh, well, I'm I'm honored to be in the presence of a iRacing Indy 500 champ. That's uh, that's no joke. I've I've done a little iRacing, and it is uh, it's legit. I know at the high levels, it's really legit. Arguably tougher competition because every other form of racing has a huge barrier to entry. And I one thing I've always said is the greatest race car driver ever born might have never gotten in a race car. From a talent standpoint, just because, but <laughs> with iRacing, the barriers are much smaller. So it stands to reason you're pulling from a much deeper pond. So kudos to you and, and Philip, uh, to you. Uh, this dialogue on trying to get me on has literally gone on for, I want to say at least two years. Yeah. And your persistence, but nice persistence, because I, my, my inboxes, there's so many inboxes now between Instagram, Facebook, twitter email text message it's like a fire hose and yeah. i sometimes i i say oh you know i need to take a little time to respond to that and then it scrolls into the abyss and the way my brain works i forget all about it and i can forget about it for years so yeah. kudos to you for the gentle prods and so forth and so i'm, I'm glad we're finally making it
0: happen yeah and that's i mean for i i told you you know over recent weeks like how You know, Ralph Shaheen came on and it's lucky that I didn't stroke out during that. It's going to be lucky if I don't stroke out during this because this is just like hero worship going on and like fangirling out. But I'm going to do my best to hold it together um, here. But I mean, let's I mean, you're one of the greatest sports car Trans Am road racers ever in the history of this great country. And you've won plenty of championships to show for it. You fit in cars that I don't know how you fit in them. We've joked around about that. Um, you've you've brought about changes to racetracks, in a sense, with some of the things that have happened. But deep down inside, you've always been a racer, and you've had a passion for racing. And, uh, I mean, I know it is a family thing. Your dad was involved, and even your brother got involved in it as well. But what what was that first thing that really made you want to become a racer when you're you know you ended up going and getting your degree which was definitely not something that was in play back in the day you're obviously your missus back in the background over there and you're together for you've been (laughs) together forever so i always remember that from they show the old videos so i mean it's like it's funny how all these things connect but it's like what was that initial piece that really got you into wanting to race
2: well it's funny because uh you have to go back in the time machine a little bit. Um, now everything is at everyone's fingertips with the internet and so forth. And so your exposure to things is much broader. But when I grew up in Lochaniana, which is a little kind of sleepy suburb of Los Angeles, um, and it's kind of kind of rural, you know, there's it's there's a lot of horse trails, you know, horse and so forth. Bottom line the reason I say that is back then you had three television channels. There was no internet. The car magazines came out once a month and the lead time was like three months. So a race coverage was from way, way back. And so this is sort of the backdrop. Bottom line, so if you didn't know someone involved in something and it wasn't a stick and ball sport, yeah, you I know, like I didn't growing up. I didn't really know there was such a thing as a race car driver. I knew there was an astronaut and so forth. We used to go water skiing. And so I've always been addicted to speed. So whether it was snow skiing, you know, and just pointing them down the hill or, you know, at the Colorado River uh, on a water ski trip, I'd always, you know, saunter up to figure out what the fastest boat was and try to hitch a ride, you know. And so I was always drawn to it. And, and you know, first mini bikes and dirt bikes. The car part didn't happen until a little bit later. It wasn't like I was in my teen or my late teens. But we had a neighbor, a guy named Pete Smith, who was the Porsche dealer in North Hollywood. And he sold Newman, Redford, McQueen, their cars back in the day. And his, he had a son my age. So at Little League games, Pete would always roll up. And car dealers never drive the same car two weeks in a row. It's on the lot down the road and so he always had something cool the first lamborghini mirror i ever saw was him pulling up so when my dad you know finally started making some money you know our company car our family cars was an ltd and a country squire wagon that's what, what what we drove and then when my dad started making some money, he built a building for Datsun in the States. And so he got a 240Z. So that was the sportiest car I'd ever been around. But then Pete started blowing in my dad's ear about buying a, a Carrera and buying a turbo. And then it was, why don't you buy a race car? And so my dad ended up buying a race car, but went to Bondurant. And then I went with my dad to Sears Point for the 80 IMSA race. And so that's a long preamble, but because I'd never really been exposed to it, I went to this race and the, the noise and the people. And the, I mean, I, my mind was blown. I was like short circuiting. I couldn't, yeah. I was overwhelmed. I And I, I couldn't think about anything else from that point on. And so I was 13 when that happened. And my dad saw the look in my eyes and he said, listen, this isn't, a, you can't do this for a living. This is fun. It's a hobby. You got to stay in school. You got to get get, keep getting good grades if you do that. We'll do it for fun as much as we can. And so that was the deal. And that's what the school grades were. That's what the college was. And and it was just, in my head, it was programmed, it literally, you have to get your college degree. And so partway through UCLA, I was actually making a living racing against his prediction. But um, but it, it never occurred to me that I was going to stop. It took me longer than I thought. But so so that was how that day at Sears Point was when the light went on that this is actually something people do. People race cars, and uh, and so you know, that seems weird telling that story now, but because the internet, you know, every kid is exposed to almost everything on earth pretty quickly if they want, and you go wherever your curiosity takes you. So um, and from there it you know we can go on to uh or whatever else you want to delve into but that was the, the genesis of it
0: yeah i mean that's an awesome i mean to know that that race that place and sears point is another racetrack that plenty of good interesting memories took place there uh i I usually do the we go and build up what the show will be but obviously this is the first part and it it's interesting this past weekend how it connects with your your legendary career uh you brought up uh, prior to the show starting that you were focused on LaMA and it was quite an interesting uh, 24 hour the centenary edition uh 16 prototype hypercar Did whatever you want to call them, GTPs, whatever, even though the hypercars haven't come over here and Glickenhaus is mad that Jim France won't work with them or whatever the heck's going on. But um, that was one of the best races that we've had in a long time. Toyota's won five years in a row and Ferrari not exactly known in certain places for their strategy or their ability to make the right calls. Um, even through uh, some issues at night, were able to hold off the all-conquering Toyota team and win the 24 Hours of Le Mans uh, overall first time in 50 years, uh, that, uh, Ferrari has been, uh, Ferrari factory effort had been there and it had been even longer since they'd won. Um, one other piece, one piece that definitely connects to you is Chevy because there was a time when you were one of the, obviously one of the young guns with some guy named Jim Johnson. I, he, he was driving there, I think yesterday, uh, driving a stock car, no less. And, um, you guys are two of the the future stars for Chevrolet and uh how you know of course through connections and years I know you guys probably have crossed paths many times, but it's interesting how the Chevy Corvette program for the last time in the G t e category now they're gonna become a customer program and you're you're basically right-hand guy one of your closest friends dan banks was long was involved in that program for years um so i guess it, it just talk about what your thoughts were about uh the race and what your i mean some of the memories you have from racing there in the viper program which i have obviously a personal love for the wall behind me as ben keating's uh viper from when he won at The Rolex, Uh, I'd prefer one of the ones you drove or when uh, you drove for SRT, but we'll see about that one day. But um, your thoughts on Le Mans and uh, what happened this past weekend, but then also in general, uh, some of the memories that you take away from being there and racing
2: there. Well, just Le Mans in general, I mean, 100 years, that's one of the things about Indy and so forth you can't manufacture history in a hurry. It takes a hundred years to have it. And and there's layers of meaning that get added on and, you know, tragedies and triumphs and all that stuff that goes into it. And so, I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing to think about a hundred years and the race lived up to that billing. I mean, I'm glad we had, I mean, the, the convergence, it's the first time, I think, in about 40 years that a U.S. car, U.S. class car has been able to compete for the overall. And so I think 935 would have been the last time that there was any sort of alignment between the top classes. And so, um, so that was cool. Um, Justin Bell posted a thing saying, you know, we kicked off, we, we introduced the centenary, centenary trophy at Pebble Beach last year. So we kicked off the year-long buildup. And then it seemed like it was a long ways away and then all of a sudden it was here but uh you know two at least two drivers from every class except lmp2 were guests recent guests of the torque show um and it's uh you know to to see a guy like pierre guidi who's you know i saw first in the states he was i mean they were everyone did a fantastic job but he was the one stint that really put some distance uh was one that he put in so uh, and then the GM angle, you know, it. this was the, yesterday would have been a very, very proud day for Herb Fischel, who was the guy that headed up all of GM racing at the time. And, and my GTP program, the reason that came into being is that was part of Herb's grand, grand plan to get to Le Mans. And it didn't work out with that particular car. But then that early Cadillac program was an offshoot. and I—I I, It was interesting to see the design cue. If you look at the forward of the rear wheel, the side pot of that car looks a lot like that early Cadillac. Um, and so, so Herb was one of the great, I mean, he was instrumental in my career because he kind of plucked me out of the Mazda. Saw me as the first sort of clean cut, articulate sort of modern day racer, which now everyone's that way so much that it's almost you're looking for the rough a little bit roughness to it but back then that was so unusual he plucked me out put me in the beretta program and worked me up through the ranks and then that was also the same program that identified sharp was the next one the next one after that was uh jeff gordon the next one after that was rick johnson the supercross guy and the next one after that was jimmy johnson were herb's pet project guys and uh so there's a lot of a lot of themes, and that's one thing that's wild when I look back on my career. You talked about threads. You know, I've got you know they they run through Sears Point a lot. They run through Watkins Glen a lot. They run through you know NASCAR a little bit, and so. I've just had this really wild, even though my career was pretty short, you know, 10, 12 years, the serious part of it. Um, I, I, you know, Paul Newman stuff, it, it just had, there was a lot of incredible things and Lamar actually wasn't really part of it. Uh, the two times I went to Lamar were post my serious career. Um, you know, 97 was in the 97s when I retired and, uh, came back to drive in 2000 and then also in the Viper program. So, I don't have any regrets per se. Um it would have been nice to have tackled Le Mans when I was as sharp as I was back in the day and with a group that I had gelled with like I had. Um but um it wasn't certainly was it just wasn't meant to be. Uh, that that track it is there's a reason it lasted for 100 years, Le Mans is because and just like there's a reason Indy's been around for so long. It really is special and different. Um another level of risk, another level of challenge, another level of speed over almost anywhere. And so that's why it has, has uh, persevered, I think, uh, bit a part of it, you know, some of it is good fortune and other things, but uh, the races that stick around for a long time are remarkable. And, and so uh, it was cool to, to watch that yesterday. Uh, I, don't, I don't stay up and watch the full 24 anymore. <laughs> But uh, but I did I did devote a good bit of time to
0: watching. And I mean, you brought it up that uh, the the fifty one Ferrari with Pair Guidi who's a multiple time world champion in GT, two of their three drivers are world champions in GT. But now they're in the prototype program. You had Charles Leclerc there visiting. Of course, he's one of the two Formula One drivers. But I also I brought up Ben Keating, brought up the Viper. He's been one of the great gentleman drivers and he is a legitimate driver and he loves racing to convince Chevrolet to, you know, he was one of the only people I think that could have convinced Chevrolet to run a customer program. And, uh, they have run so well that they basically locked up the GTM title, um, already three races into the season, um, probably you know at in Monza they'll they'll definitely lock it up by running however much distance they have to but i mean i think i remember your two years with the SRT program the BOP was just garbage um, and you guys struggled and I'm like this is ridiculous the BOP is horrible because we're getting held back because in IMSA when you guys were in the IMSA championship it was a way more balanced deal and it was way more competitive obviously to where you're able to compete for wins, you're competing against Corvette, you're competing against these other teams Uh, but that's just my personal bias aside because I wanted to see you win but
2: you know well BOP is is kind of in my mind is fatally flawed it's I I get why it's done and they've gotten way way better at it um but the nature of it is almost impossible to get right, A. And the other part it does, like I watched Le Mans, I watched it closely, but I don't know, honestly, who did the best job there. And that's, that's the real shame of B.O.P. So, you know, um, when you watch, because it's artificially manipulated, like you know in Formula One who's doing the best job. You know, in IndyCar, who's doing the best job? You know, in NASCAR, who's doing the best job? Because there's a set of rules that everyone competes to, and they don't they don't adjust people. And so, again, I get why it's there, but it's sort of fatally flawed sometimes. And and so, what ends up happening? It's still hard to execute. Now, if we had the good VOP when I went in the Viper, and the story I I had in my head, you know, I had convinced myself that we were going to be ready to win that race and so forth. And we get there, and I saw these the. Every grandstand had a grandstand sized banner with a Porsche on it. It was the 50th anniversary of the 9-11 and we were racing against the 9-11. I, we go out in the first test session and it's not even close. And, and I am like, okay, I get it. But, and so there's, it, it kind of rotates, it rotates around. Even some of it is probably some politicking, effective politicking. And some of it is just, they, they're doing their best and they miss, they overshoot a little bit on the adjustment or so forth and so on. But, the, the key takeaway is it is what it is and it's here for to stay for now you need to when it's your time and you have the BOP you better execute and so we didn't do that that year with the Viper you know we weren't fast enough to win but we also made a handful of mistakes and you know had a flat, flat tire and and uh you know, so bottom line, even if we were the quickest car, we weren't gonna win that year because we may we didn't execute. And so that was kind of my takeaway. As long as BOP is here and I, I, I gotta think there's actually a better way, but as long as it's here, you you better wait for when when it kind of comes right for you, you better you better tease those. And so that's like Ferrari. Uh they had arguably probably all things considered, they had the best BOP, but they also executed that's perfectly. Funny. And yeah. so that's kind of that that's a bit of a bummer for me with sports car jet racing in general right now, is I'd love to see them get back to some sort of equivalency formula where it's, you know, it's a set amount of fuel. Because right now, if you some people have more power but they also get more fuel, but they also have more weight. You know, in, back in the old day with IMSA, and maybe this there's a reason why this wouldn't work today, but you had a slope of a line with displacement and weight, and there was a correction factor for turbocharging, and you did whatever you wanted. And so if you were getting waxed, you had to figure out, I need to go in a different place on that line and outcompete the people at the same place or whatever. I like that better. And if someone had a package, often it wasn't as close racing because someone was better. But you were, are, do you want to see close racing, or do you want to see excellence in racing? So I, I don't know what the right answer to that is, but that's mm-hmm. kind of the framing for it. And, and so Formula One, you're seeing that play out. You saw dominance before by Mercedes. You're seeing dominance right now by Red Bull. Um, I think dominance is, is okay because it never lasts forever. And it's also like when, you, when someone beat the Bulls, you knew that you were watching. Like when the Golden State Warriors first started ascending, You knew you were seeing something special when they're knocking off the last dynasty. Right now, when you see a win, you're like, "Ah, they did a great job, but are they really outperforming everybody else or is it just BOPs, the win at their back? That was a rambling answer. I hope that made sense, but that's sort of my beef with that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I figured I mentioned that. I figured that would uh, open up some uh, avenues there. Um, I mean, I, I remember that with the with the i have it over here i'm i'll go and take my screen and adjust it here if i can do it give me a second here i'm gonna go and show the picture it's an autograph picture from you um showing a car that has clear connections to cars that came after like you mentioned the cadillac and to today's cadillac prototype and i mean now the prototype that you drove of course the intrepid essentially looked like the riley dp um the front end was basically the same the greenhouse was a lot no offense to 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 bill riley but the greenhouse on the dp was not as aesthetically pleasing as it was on your car but i think that was more a box of where they had to work within um but then yeah, that was the most early, prominent car early
2: dp early dp regulations had that yeah that's sort of uh, odd, uh, odd greenhouse. Shape. So, yeah
0: that's why that's why we had some of those goofy looking cars and then max crawford came out with his and then oh we can make it look good um
2: perfectly said you're right
0: yeah so i mean that's uh so yeah okay so here we go i don't know if you can see it i'm going to move over that's the ben keating car and over there on the top Still is blurry. your first it, it's still a little blurry, but it is your first Trans Am Championship Beretta, Turbo Beretta, back in the day of uh when you had all the different you're talking about all the different types of engines you add in there v6s v8s turbo fours this is on the heels after audi went and (laughs) with hurley haywood and hans stuck with the all-wheel drive quattro and had uh made scca basically change the rule book uh but you and chris knifold the tallest duo i think in the history of motorsports uh dominated in 1990 and you uh ended up winning that championship and that led to the Intrepid program and you've talked about it over the years and it's interesting. Like, yeah, it wasn't Herb Fischl wanted to bring it to Le Mans. I guess that's where in the end it worked out with the Corvette program, but yes. you could still have these connections. You could still see cues that were in the nineties, 30 plus years later, uh, 30, 40 years later in motorsport. And, and, and I think that's one thing that makes it so cool. I think it's one thing that makes it, legends like yourself for for fans who have been longtime fans or for new fans you can always learn and you can always see things that connect the sport together um i mean i i wanted to bring up of course your four-time trans am champion should be five general Lozzi screwed you over with that engine but um that uh that was when uh tk got called out of retirement to be the test driver for that, um, 4.5 liter Jaguar engine. And, um, I don't know how many mechanicals you had, uh, but it was too many, unfortunately, and seemed convenient. Um, I think I've, was...
2: uh, I've, I've tuned some of those out. I, I used to know exactly how many, but, uh, funny story about that is, um, well, when, when Paul called me and we were bitter rivals is not an overstatement, um, uh, mm-hmm. And he called me and says, "Hey, Pruitt signed with Lexus, um, Jag. I've committed to them that this this uh, four valve has to win the title. Are you interested?" And I'm like, "Well." Um, and so he has a reputation for a number of things, including not always paying. And so, anyways, I I ran the math and I said, "You know what? I'll do this." And my my dad actually called me and said, "What are you doing?" I said, "Dad, I'm." I, I've assumed that the deal is going to change from what was promised. I'm assuming I'm not going to get all my pay. And uh, he says, so why are you doing this? I said, my only objective is to have fun and drive a, a good car. And it, I, I thought that it was going to be really competitive. In, in fairness to Paul, I did get paid all my money. So that I was kind of in a minority in that, but I did get paid all my money. The deal did change from what was told. But he, So anyways, the four valve I thought was fully sorted and so forth. It wasn't. So we blew up leading three of the first four races i think and I paul newman came to Paul Newman came to me and said uh you know he's got a button in his car to blow your car up." <laughs> it looks that way i guess maybe but i don't think so so but that, that was that's what it, it looked like to paul so yeah. um well and so fast forward you know we got to the last race and then the car came right and i started winning but then paul was i think enjoying being out in front and so forth, and so even though he was in the two valve, um, it uh, it didn't quite work out we ended up t- dead tied and then he won the tiebreaker because all my DNFs early in the yeah. year so uh anyways i i don't have any regrets about that either uh i would i would have loved a fifth title and uh and but uh c'est la vie i i did actually have a very good time that year i, I really enjoyed my the driving that year which was which was my objective so um yeah. we digressed i don't know we weaving all around there um, yeah that that's I don't know if you want to talk about that first Beretta. It's funny. Um, I had myself convinced at the time when we were doing the clay model. It was the greenhouse was shrunk, the driver's seat was way in the center. It was. It really was kind of a funny car. And now I see pictures of it, like, wow, that doesn't look anything like the car, you know. Yeah. But back then we had ourselves convinced that because the silhouette, the center line, other than the hood scoop from bumper to bumper and the wing actually lined up with with a stock beretta, but everything else was dramatically different. I actually have one of on the cars I have a car that I won elkhart Lake with um i haven't ever raced it I've had it since uh, i I got it as part of my last Chevrolet contract in ninety two And, uh, and so Binks, it's back at Binks's and at some point we'll go through it and get it freshened up, probably needs new fuel cell and it needs some work, but at some point I'd like to get that one out. But that, that car was, uh, you know, we, it was, had the same sponsorship basically as the Williams F1 car. I really Mm -hmm. pushed to, to do the graphics exactly the same. And we did a photo shoot at Phoenix that year with the, with the Williams team, with with Patracy and Bootson. Um, and it really, I mean, it, it, iconic looking livery and it really yeah. popped. So, uh, good stuff.
0: Yeah. And you definitely, you and Chris Neifel, uh, had a good time driving it. You're having a battle, yeah. uh, talking about P.L. Newman, um, who is also one of my heroes, not just because I somehow or another got lucky enough to share the same birthday with him, but also cause he's an l- absolute motorsports icon and an acting icon too but i think of paul newman more as a race car driver personally because it's just cool how he came out and that's that connects to your board thing um you were a chevy guy on the prototype program with jim miller and everything uh didn't after the the injury didn't um it didn't Stay together or whatever. I'm not sure how it all kind of worked out, but you became a free agent and to be a free agent when you're as good as you are. And Jack Roush swooped in and uh, signed you to drive uh, GTO. I think it was 1993. And it was, um, I guess you're essentially taking over for Robbie Gordon because Robbie Gordon got the call to drive IndyCar. Little did we know that that would lead to about five or six years of, of basically dominance, but that's where it started. Um, I guess we connect from Chevy. We talked about Jaguar. I didn't get Mopar and we'll get that one next, but talk about those days with Ford and the Roush racing program when the all sport Mustang, uh, Winning in GTO with them, and also I guess it connects with Paul Newman, because you got to drive with him in 1995 uh, and won Mark Martin uh, to go and Michael Brockman to win uh, the Rolex 24 in uh, the GTS one class i think it was called back then i think you finished in the top five in the race or something too cause, third actually yeah yeah because it was a it was a porsche kramer car that won overall because all the wsc cars were like flaming out or whatever so it was a porsche kramer that won the race overall
2: you know i actually had forgotten who had won overall that year i know in 93 we when we finished second overall the gurney car we almost won overall that year There was only one car uh, the gurney car finished yeah. in front of us but the yeah the Chevy to Ford transition uh actually it, it, is this okay with the sun do i need to i mean no you're good you're good,
1: you're good. Is it okay okay yeah. Yeah. so
2: um basically once i started winning you know after GTU and winning in transam with with Chevy uh, i i used to get uh overtures from Ford Lee Morris was there at the time and and I, I told him, I said, I'm flattered, but I said, I, I don't like playing one group against the other. And so I said, as long as Chevy makes my deal, I'm probably going to stay here. But if, uh, and he said, well, if they ever don't, let us know. And so basically uh, in when I came back from my accident in 91, there was, Chevy was, I think, maybe I don't remember exactly what was going on economically at the time, but basically Jim Miller built the car to prove its competitiveness, build the Riley design. And his idea was that he was then going to step back and not. Have to write any more checks, but still run the team, uh, kind of like the Corvette program. Well, I got hurt, which threw a big monkey wrench into it. Chevy kind of pulled back and didn't step up for the full thing. Jim Miller, to his credit, said, told me that there was a car waiting for me when I was when I was able. So when it was looking like I was going to be able to run in '92, he said, "Well, we'll run the full season." And I said, "Well, what Chevy's not stepping up?" He says, "Yeah, but I made you a promise." And I said, "Well, I said that's incredibly uh, forthright or you know upstanding." But um, I said, you don't have to do that. Let's run as many races as as their money will allow us. And uh, so we did that And the car, the, you know, the car had been leapfrogged already, basically by the new Jag and the new, uh, the new Toyota. And so, you know, we, we, we weren't terribly competitive. We finished uh, second at road in Lano and the Nissan's both crashed out spectacularly, but we weren't really that competitive. And so um, I kept thinking the sun, the sun's getting lower, not higher. So now I'm going to be in the full sun. So, but anyway, that's, uh, I'm gonna scoot over here or I'm gonna get turn into a a, a lobster um, so uh, sorry for this uh, but uh, so at the as, as the, it became clear that they were gonna basically pull out of GTP at the end of that year and they weren't competitive and so forth and so I started scrambling saying what you know I, I wanted to go back to transam and so I proposed uh, going back to transam and basically it was one of these things where with herb before Anything I wanted to do, as long as he could make some case for it, it it happened. Mountains got moved. I had an IndyCar test. I did a that, you know some races with, with Earnhardt in that uh, EDS car. But there was just a subtle change. And no matter how much sense it seemed to make what I was offering, they said, well, we've got Buzz McCall's team. And I'm like, Buzz McCall's team? We used to smoke them. And they're only the factory team because we went to GTP. And... And then I said, "What about a fifth wheel with a single car with Biggs and I?" And you're like, "Yeah, no, we probably can't do that." And so th- the writing was on the wall. I I, I uh, equate it to being when you when you get put in the friend zone by a girl, you know, and you're you're trying everything, and they've always got an answer for it. And I'm like, "Okay, so." I said, and I don't. they weren't going to drop me because I'd just come back from my accident, but I think I was going to literally kind of be almost put out to pasture. I think I would have been doing more marketing stuff, maybe run cup road races or this, that, and the other. And I said, I, I need a, a full-time ride to show that I still have the goods because that wasn't exactly obvious in that little brief moment in time. And so... Uh, Ford had said, if you're ever interested, let us know. So I let them know. And uh, Max Jones had been my teammate before, and he drove a year at Roush, but then he was put into team management. His career basically was ending, but he was then becoming a team manager. They had this new GTS program. Um, Jack wanted to know if I was damaged goods, um, and Max assured him, nope, um, he's not. And so the deal went together and then, you know, we went to Daytona, won uh, the Rolex, my very first race in a Ford, won the championship that year. And so the funny part is from that moment on, the overtures started coming from Chevy again. Um, They never came direct. They always came through a weird side channel. Someone, a friend of mine that was a dealer says, Hey, uh, Herb was sort of asking about you. And and I said, I said, I'm going to tell him the same thing I told Ford. I don't like playing one against the other. So, you know, um, they let me go. And uh, and so that was, that's how it goes. And it, it became a, uh, I mean, I wasn't in the meeting. So I'm going, this is what was told to me. And then when I started going on the run with Trans Am, the championships, um, I heard it was, it was an explicit, Chevrolet race shop goal. The first goal was to win the Indy Car Championship. Second goal was to win the NASCAR Championship. Third goal was to specifically beat me. And uh, with with Buzz McCall's team, which of course, um, after well, that first year Pruitt, uh, I did finish third and Pruitt won the championship. But after that, uh, they they couldn't couldn't get it accomplished. So um, that was that was satisfying. A little little backstory. You know, I don't uh, hold any ill will. Herb did a tremendous amount for my career. And I could see why he thought, you know, that part of the reason we weren't as competitive in the prototype was maybe because of me. turns out it wasn't, it was the other cars that sort of leapfrogged past us. Definitely. But, um, you know, I, I had to, Yeah, you know, that's why that year was so pivotal. I had to get back to, you know, laying down the laps and, and, and winning uh, nothing like that to, uh, to speak for you.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that going to that program with Roush and then how you and Banksy went and took that, the iconic all sport Mustang. I mean, I don't know how many Hot Wheels of that particular like car whether it's in that kind of paint scheme or whatever. How many of those Trans-Am Mustangs I have. And it's only it's mainly because you drove that car and you won so much. Um and in, and I mean it's interesting we talked about, you know, Lamar, we talk about Trans-Am. It also brings about I talked about Mark Martin, you and him had a great podcast on went on his show, talked about Uh, Sonoma 1991, when I just hear Bob Jenkins. It's the reason why I always joke around and I always emphasize it because I just hear Bob Jenkins' booming voice saying, Young Tom Kendall in the 42 mellow, the mellow yellow Pontiac uh filling in for kyle petty and then kyle petty's all happy sitting there i mean he's not happy he had a broken leg but he's like i he's like yeah you know i think we hired the best person we could possibly find to go and drive that car and i'm like yeah i agree um and he kept on saying young tom kendall and i always back in those days in the 90s it was you and scott sharp because scott sharp looked like he was 12 until i don't know the late 90s uh but uh they always emphasize that, and I always got a kick out of it. I mean, yeah, you definitely look young, you had Zach Morris looking a whole bit, and I get it, and clean cut, and all that. But then they just emphasize it. I'm like, yeah. we know he's young, I get it. Like, if somebody yeah. would go and say young William Byron, I mean, they say YRB for Blaney, but they don't really reference it that, that way anymore. Mm-hmm. But they don't emphasize it, but then it's also Bob Jenkins. So that's probably well, it's of.
2: also that showed you how much things change because. <clears throat> When I won my you know championships, you could not get a professional national license until you're eighteen. Now you can get that when you're I think fourteen. And so to have you know the prime of guys was really late twenties and thirties. Like Earnhardt really I think won his first title. He was twenty nine or thirty. You know, there it was it, it was a different era um, in terms of youth. Uh, and so it was remarkable then. Now it's not. Like I said, you know, you've you've got uh you know, guys, you know, Graham Rahal has 200 and something starts and he's how old is he now you know 250 starts and he's not 45 he's like 35 so yeah. um yeah so it, it is but i that does make sense i was wondering where that got burned into your psyche so yeah I, that makes sense yeah that was yeah. i mean that that race was it was it was two weeks before my big accident yeah um, and so i You know, Gary Nelson was the crew chief on that car, which Mm -hmm. you might not have known before he went on to be you know, NASCAR tech director and so forth. And so we had a great rapport and he was he was clearly an advanced thinker, you know, very open minded, which was one of the challenges in the NASCAR days in terms of trying new stuff. And, you know, two master cylinders for brakes instead of one uh, and so forth and so on. So um, it was a proper road race car. They also were the first guys, I think, to figure out the, you know, stopping the first, you know, stopping before the yellows on road courses rather than on the yellows like on on the ovals ovals. and uh now everyone knows that but so we were i mean i was checked out and we were going to win that race if uh richard doesn't have his crash and uh, it was a legit yellow though because i think he broke his foot it turned out i'm not sure that was publicized but um so um but that's what bunched everyone up and and set up that final thing and so it was fun to go on mark's show because the whole time we were next to each other in the in the paddock there and after the race it was tense but nothing was said yeah uh, his father never spoke to me again um but mark and i were teammates for five years at rouse yeah. and shared the car twice at daytona and had a good rapport and became good friends but never talked about that never ever talked until that podcast and yeah. someone suggested it on twitter you ought to have kendall on and talk about serious points like, oh, i idea. think it was what me think? i was think it? it was me well, look at you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, because because I'm like, once Mark started talking about his podcast, everyone was into it, like Josh and I, we listen mm-hmm. to, you know, DJD and stuff like that. But Mark was big on it and talking about his history. And the fact that he remembers the Springs and his chassis set up from 1974 is insane to me, but he can tell it to you like verbatim. But mm-hmm. I was like, you know, that might be a good one because it was coming around the time. I don't know how many years after it had happened. And I was like, you know, it's an anniversary or something close to something like that. And I'm like, I think that'd be a cool thing. And I don't know if I mentioned it to you or I just randomly posted, but I feel like it was me. I'll take credit for it just for the sake of it. It's Cause it was probably, a good show. Right?
2: probably, it was it was on twitter it was on twitter yeah. and he he saw it and said right, that's a good idea what do you think And i said let's do it so you tagged both of us so we were both on yeah. the thread yeah yeah that was, that was so kudos
0: to you yeah well i mean it's it's a because it's also interesting you brought it up how you guys are teammates you're basically the two biggest guys at the team and um you were winning he was winning he had i think the last year you were was 98 right you last year was for 97, 97. 97. So you had, um, 98 was a year that basically any other year he could have won the championship, but Jeff went and won 13 races. So in the rainbow warriors with Ray Evernham, which connects to the garage 56 because of Chad can and Jimmy and all these things. And I mean, I'm curious because you had the NASCAR, you had the taste of NASCAR. You had that opportunity way back when with Gary Nelson and Felix Sabatis, you had, you brought up, Dale Earnhardt, and you've said it in many interviews how much you looked up to him, and how you kind of you driven for Jimmy Means. I think you drove for um, Mark Reno as well, maybe off, or I'm maybe mistaking it, but you're, no,
2: you're right. Reno ran the the Earnhardt EDS program. Yep.
0: Okay. So yeah, because Mark Reno was close friends with Ernie Irvin, so I always connect Mark Reno with Ernie. And Ernie was also—I mean, it's all kind of crazy how it all connects. But um, you got experience. You even ran ovals a little bit. Um, was there ever a desire once you had finished that Trans Am run, or was it ever offered to you to jump in a in a truck or jump in a Bush car or anything from yep. Roush?
2: it was offered well yes it was offered by roush that was actually how the parting, why the parting was acrimonious with roush because uh in 97 i i, I was never willing to move to charlotte okay mm-hmm. um i just didn't want to do it uh wasn't up for, I, I you know later on i would have i guess but at the time i just i wasn't willing to move to charlotte so and i didn't uh, and everybody said you got to be in charlotte they were probably right um, to really, uh, to really get immersed and in, in figure it out. But in '97, um, when it was clear that Transam Ford was going to pull out at the end of '97, then I—that's a different scenario. So uh, they were—they uh, started talking about a truck program, and I said, "Well, I'm open to it." They said, "Well, we've got this new truck program. It's four years." I'm like, oh, four years? Wow. Okay, that's a big commitment, you know." And long story—I try to shorten the story a little bit, but um they the the first offer was just super low ball and i said yeah not interested in that and the the offer kept doubling um, and this was also while the wind streak was starting it was early in the year early in the wind streak but then as the wind streak continued it was five races it was six it was seven it was eight it was nine and so i kept with after it doubled Twice numbers get big in a hurry when you double them twice, yeah. and so um, and and they and they, it was weird because they said this is four years of truck. There's no cut promise. There's no and so I'm like okay, I'm opened it whatever. But four years of trucks is four years of trucks. Yeah. So it needs to be you know especially by the end pretty sweet and deal and and i'd say well what about they said well the early offer that was a low ball i said you know i think i'm going to do better than you think i am you know and you obviously think so or you wouldn't hire me let's put some big incentives in like big incentives for wins and championships and like yeah we can't do that i said well that protects you if i don't run well and if if i win six races you ought to be happy for the big bonuses you know and so long story short it, it kept growing and pretty soon it was it was a pretty big number and we were, but we were still a little ways apart. And I said to him, I said, um, I said, it, it seems like you guys are out of cash and I'm not ready to commit yet. Um, what about my car, the all sport car? And I was negotiating with the CEO of Roush Industries, a guy named Evan Lyle, not Jeff Smith, who was the head of uh, Roush Racing. And he said, are, are you saying if we throw the car in, uh, we have a deal? I said, put a big, pretty big valuation on that car when you multiply it over four years. But I said, yes, if the car is in the deal, we have a deal. And um, I figured out basically the reason the deal kept getting bigger was I figured out they had someone, a sponsor that was demanding that I was the driver mm. because it. You know, what was weird about it is I'd been there for five years and I'd never so much as driven a lap in one of, he had, I don't know how many, he had four cup cars and three bush cars and four trucks. You know, there were so many cars and it was never a sub, it was never a this, which they never promised me, but it was a little weird that you have a guy that's just knocking the cover off the ball over here and and it was probably partially re- and so then all of a sudden to be so lathered up coming at me with all this and so i finally figured out that's what was likely going on behind the scenes um i don't think i've ever told this story in this much detail but um so um they came back and said how about an option on the car and i said well he says because and here, I'll, well, no point not sharing the details evan said you know that's the kind of thing that jack would maybe like to give you if you won the championship or something and i'm thinking well I've won four championships here in five years, and he hasn't given me so much as a pen more than my contract calls for, which is fine, cause it, but yeah. it's, it's not likely that he's given me the car. So, but I said, so I said to him, I, so first of all, he said, he, I said, well, what about an option? I presented the option. He says, he, they go, oh, well, we can do an option. I said, okay, if you do an option on the car, we have a deal. He says, okay, we've got a deal. He says we're drawing up the contracts and we're fedexing them to you and so i said okay and he says as soon as you get it you have to sign it fax us this was before email you have to fax yeah. us your signature and fedex it back i said deal so the next day or the, whatever day the fedex was supposed to get there i said i called him and i there's an email or it was an email so i called and said hey uh the, the FedEx didn't arrive. And he says, OK, uh, we're running a tracer on it. By the way, the car is out of the deal. And I said, well, you know, the car is what made the deal. So um, and they this answer was, well, we still think it's a very good offer." And I said, well, it's not what we agreed to. And it's it's not a deal. And so that's how the deal came apart and uh and then what had happened, a couple of things happened: one Greg Biffle had entered the frame through yep. and and it was Granger that was driving the the, yep, the, that's... the the urgency so Biffle had entered, but another thing happened, I think, and I don't have confirmation I should actually ask Jack this because it deals change. And I wasn't upset about it until they laid the blame on me in the press afterwards that I kept changing the deal, when in fact, the exact opposite is true. And so they changed the deal. But what, what I think happened is Evan was a good is a good was a good friend. of him. I haven't spoken to him. We're, we're on good terms. I think he wanted the deal to happen so badly that he thought, and he was the CEO, he could do whatever he wanted, generally speaking. I think he did this. And when he went to Jack, I don't think he said, we have a deal and this is the deal. I think he said, what do you think about an option on that car? And I think Jack probably said, no way. So rather than saying we've already agreed to it, I think that's when the thing came to me, by the way, the car is out of the deal. Yeah. So I don't know for sure what, but that's, that's I I don't know why Jack would get up in front of all the AP and everybody and tell a lie, unless he'd been given the wrong information. So I don't know the exact story, but I'm guessing that's probably what happened. I I, I would like, you know, I would have liked that car, you know, I've got, I've got, my first five championship cars, but the one I would like the most is that one. Yes, um, but, but, you know, again, things happen the way they're meant to. It was obviously it was phenomenal for Biffle. I think Biffle thanked me after his first win. I think he'd been told kind of a wrong version of the story, namely that I kept changing the deal, which wasn't true, but, um, it, it, when i finally met biffle it was only recently i told him the real story and i said I'm, I'm happy for you it worked out awesome for you it worked out awesome for me um so that was my first offer for cup but when the roush deal ended i got an offer full-time offer in the second yates car which was starting up that year and it was triple the money. car yes it was triple the money uh the Yeah. The 88 car. Yes. So it was, it was huge money, but I, I turned it down. Um, there's two pieces to that. Um, I was kind of burnt out. Um, and the thought of doing three times as many races, I just didn't think I could do. The other part of that was there was, uh, there was a, this was before the Roush deal formally ended. We, we, I knew I wasn't getting the truck deal, but the season was still going and I was still under contract. The season had just ended. There was this year-end event at uh Road lano It was one of the cooler events, sponsor events that ever was. Jack would bring all the Trans Am cars, all the Cup cars. You know, it was Bush then and trucks and some Bondurant cars. He'd bring his P fifty one Mustangs. They'd be at the airport. And basically every sponsor could bring like four people. And it was like the ultimate fun day. We called it fun days. It was the ultimate fun day boondoggle. And I gave rides in the race car. We gave rides in the race car. Certain people got to drive some of the race cars. Uh, One of the Valvoline guys actually put Mark's Valvoline Xfinity car on its lid that day. One of those days, one of the years. (laughs) But um, it's funny because my contract with Roush was really explicit on taking sponsors and the penalties were literally a penalty of three times the amount of the sponsorship you would have to pay. And so when I was approached by um, Yates, I said, they one of the sponsors they were talking to was Family Channel. And I said, just to let you know, I said, if it's Family Channel, I can't do it because of this contract. And so they said, okay, we still want to do the deal. And so I get a call from Max Jones after, and things kind of were, were tense, we won the championship but the, the way things ended and them let, saying I was changing the deal things were tense at the end of that 97 season we won the championship we won the 11 in a row all that stuff um but Max called me and he said uh I understand you're trying to uh steal our sponsors and we're not really excited about having you come to fun days and be around all of our sponsors and I said uh do you want to Hear my side of the story. He says, nope, I'm just delivering the message." I said, "Okay." Um, so what are you saying? He says, uh, "You're you're uninvited to funday," which I said, which was fine with me because all I did I sweat sweated my ass off giving rides for five hours a day, so it yeah. wasn't like I needed to do that, but. I would have told him, I told the other team that it can't be one of Roush's sponsors or I can't do the deal. So that's what I would have, you know, if he wanted to hear my side of the story. He didn't want to hear my side of the story at the time. He since has heard it. But uh, so anyways, so that was uh, my other. So I ultimately turned down the Roush, the Yates deal and they wouldn't accept my no at first. Um, I said and she said, she goes, take a week. The, The gal that was putting the deal together, I said, I said, I don't think my. I don't think it's going to change, but I'll take a week. And a week later, I said, my mind hasn't changed. And I, I turned the deal down. And I, I think, was it Kenny Irwin that drove it? That, yeah. that uh, so that's year?
0: a Texaco Havoline. Yeah, that based on the yeah. timing. Yeah, that's when they, because they were, they had ran Ernie out the door because he messed up at the uh, the banquet, didn't think Texaco Havoline or something, or something by mistake, which at the end of the day, when you're Ernie almost passed away and he comes back and finishes 10th in points with essentially with one eye Mm -hmm. and he finished 10th in points. Now, of course, Todd Parrott and the 88, he basically shoved everything over there with him and DJ. um, And that changed the whole deal. And then once you are talking about the timing of it, I'm like that probably either is they're making another car or you're, they were hiring you to run the Texaco Avalon Ford, which would have been pretty crazy. Um, but in considering how bad it went that first year, I think it was definitely a good call on your part. Um, Kenny Irwin did figure it out in his second year. And unfortunately, um, you know, in his third season went to Felix and that was a bad time in NASCAR in general. So, but yeah, that was one. And then when you were talking about four year deal, I'm like, that has to be Granger. I'm like, it's either Granger or LCI. And then I'm like, you're going to talk about Biffle at some point. And then you brought it. That's what they had because Benny Parsons had um, basically because of winter heat was propping up Biffle. Um, Mm -hmm. That was when the Roush gong show stuff was going on. He was relatively young, uh, and for that age, not to, you know, the fact that Kurt Bush came in a 20, whatever years old, a couple of years later is a whole other thing. But, um, I mean, that makes so much sense because it's like a oh, four year deal. And I'm thinking about the timing of it. I'm like, that sounds like Granger. And if you had been in that truck, I think, you know, I mean, God bless Greg Biffle. He won Truck Series championship, Xfinity championship, or Bush championship, and then went to Cup and had a great career. And but I think that would have been pretty interesting, uh, yep. if that had been the case. But I I was always curious as to you know when you stopped, you'd went you basically you know quietly went about it. But of course, Roush handled it the way they did, and then you became an announcer. Did you ever? Did you ever? Think that after all these years of racing that you were going to go and get behind the mic and become an announcer because then you covered the IndyCar series and you were there and you met the other TK because you're the original TK and um, Antoine Canon Came along amongst uh, his uh, his best buddy, Elio Castro-Dash Neves, back in... He wasn't shoe polishing his hair back then. But um, you met all those guys. You worked with Bob Varsha, the legend. Um, what brought that about, that you went from four time trans Four trans am championships or three trans am championships in a row to I'm going to work for ESPN. I'm going to call IndyCar car races.
2: Well, um, it was, it actually, my, my debut came during the 97 season and, uh, it was, uh, it was in the run-up to Elkhart, because Elkhart was was the debut. But so I was on my win streak. Steve Byme was the director for the ABC uh, IndyCar ES, ABC shows, IndyCar shows, and the producer was I think maybe Bob Goodrich. Anyways, so the producer. World Cup was happening, and so he was doing World Cup, and so they promoted Byme. Byme apparently had been whispering in their ears, saying, hey, I think Kendall would be great on these telecasts, so why don't we bring him in? And they they said they weren't interested. When they made him producer, he said, I want to bring Kendall in for Elkhart Lake. And they're like, you know, we, we don't like the idea. And he's like, am I the producer or am I not? They're like, okay. So he's the producer. So he called me and asked if I wanted to do it. And I said, I don't think I can. He said, what do you mean? You're going to be there. I said, I know, but we race on Saturday and uh, Saturday night, I'm going to be at Siebkin's. And I said, I don't think I'm going to be in any shape to call TV on Sunday. And he's like, are you serious? I said, I'm just telling you the way it is, I, you know, I said, either the streak will be 10 in a row or it'll be over. And at Siebkin, I said, I'm guarantee it's going to, you know, and so he's like, wow, he's, I think you've got your priorities messed up. I said, well, I think they're perfectly straight. So anyways, he started saying, he said, well, what if you don't have to be there early? I said, or don't have, we don't have any meetings during the week. You know, your first meeting is Sunday. You don't have to be there real early. I'm like, okay, now you're talking. And so long story short, I agreed to do it. The Siebkins night was is is part of Siebkins lore now because I drank. Well, I don't know how much I drank, but I, I close to a yard of Jägermeister because um well three three yards were consumed and I was dishing a bunch of it and I because I went there well I just tell that whole story so I went there on Friday and everyone's like have a shot and I said I'm not having a shot they're like come on you always have a shot I said no I always have a shot after the race race is tomorrow no shots so they're like come on it's Siebkins I'm like no not having a shot. So I said, tomorrow night, I said, I'll drink a yard of Jaegermeister, but I'm not having a shot tonight. That was the quote. Well, the next night, I'm literally not even off the sidewalk. I'm walking up and someone says, they're waiting for you. And I walk in and they have, I think it was a half yard as it turns out, but a bottle of Jaeger fills up a half a yard of Jaeger. And I refilled it twice. And now in spite of what this sounds like, I've never been a huge drinker. It used to be the only time I drank all year was at Siebkin's once a year and and, uh, then i you know but i've never been a big big drinker i've never had a lot of tolerance so in my head i'm thinking i can't drink this i got to give as much of this away as i can you know but when you're pouring shots for other people you end up having one so god knows how many i had i had a lot of yeager someone drove me back to the hotel i overslept the next morning i woke up i went i'm like oh my my meetings in like 25 minutes i pile into my car i said I, i wasn't shaved i had didn't shower i said i'll come back to the hotel after the meeting I walk in late, my hair's like this, I had a spam t-shirt it was the t-shirt I grabbed. I said I I I warned you guys and they're like, "Oh my god." And so, that was the setup. I went back to shave and shower. I got stuck in traffic. I I was almost late for the race. We ended up getting a rain delay. So instead of a, I don't know, uh Ten minutes, twelve-minute pre-show before the green. We had to fill for like an hour and a half, and this is my first time on TV, and I'm I'm not feeling great, but I'm in there. I'm in the booth at first for the pre-show with Sullivan and Varsha, and then they wanted me. Bime wanted me in this my own little tower down in Turn Five,
0: Turn Five
2: for the race, and and so you know I just let it rip. Partially because I didn't feel well, partially because I I sensed that people wanted something different than TV. And now that's pretty commonplace. Back then, it wasn't obvious that that's what people wanted. And so um, the one memory, be- other than there's a couple, one, I, they sent me on my way with a pack to go interview my- Mario and Michael, to, you know, the stall to you know, we needed to fill time. So I go over to the hospitality, I interview Mario and Michael, and I'm standing there and they're a foot shorter than I am. And so I literally, I'm, I'm talking to the camera and then I'm, and we're using the same mic and I'm like bending down and I'm like, I still remember that the the up and down of that and then when i get to the the tower and I start climbing up the scaffolding. I think Hobbs might've been in that grandstand. Someone was in the grandstand and said, um, "Seepkins." they were yelling about Seepkins the night before. And I was like, so we get through the race, the race was good, Paul was good. Yeah, you know, again, I, did, I didn't feel great. I, I probably, it was my first time on TV. I, I probably wasn't as smooth as I could have been. After the race, I called my mom and she was. I said, how, how did it go? She goes, you know, you sounded good, but you looked really pale. <laughs> She had no idea what had happened the night before. So uh, anyway, so that was my television debut. Um, the next year, I think I did five races with them. So to answer your original question, I I didn't have a grand plan. Everything kind of fell in my lap. Um, after that first time, one of the challenges was I liked it. And so I said, how do I keep that same I don't care attitude when I do care? So this is a good, you know, this is a little bit towards, you know, you being nervous or, you know, I've always been good at being kind of my own shrink and figuring out a way to, to talk to myself. And so my little mantra was before I went on the air was try to get fired a little bit today as a way to keep the, the fear at bay because you know the, the owners back then especially were really powerful. So if you hurt someone's feeling or you know, you can get fired. So I'm like it, it, you know, it might be part of the deal, so don't get too attached to this, and 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 let it rip. So um, that was sort of my my, and I, I have been fired, I guess. Um, you know, I, I in essence got fired because when it went from Fox to NBC on the sports cars, uh, Justin, and I didn't get asked over, and they're like, he said, "Well, we just didn't get asked over." I said, "When you've been doing it for ten years and they don't ask you over, that's getting fired." So. Uh, <laughs>
0: yeah that, that's I, definitely missing yeah you guys being on there and justin will always get himself into some interesting stuff but then i think he took that from uncle uncle Habo there in in a lot of ways because uh i think kindred spirits in a lot of way
2: yeah you know it's it's funny i was asked specifically by a journalist do you ever worry about getting fired and oh when i when I got the offer to do the full season in like o two o three o two 02, I think was the first year, uh, someone, uh, Eric Johnson interviewed me. I said, you know, I'm not stupid. I understand that the power dynamics and how this works. I said, but I said, if some owner gets his panties in a wad or an official or whatever and wants to fire me, I said, the fans like me and they like what I'm saying. So I said, you're in essence, if you fire me, as long as I don't do something you know, obviously horrific, but if I am just dancing on the line which is what i do um if you fire me you're firing your fans I said, that's not a great way to run run a entertainment venue and so i i said it's sort of perverse job security whether it actually keeps them on my job or not i don't know but that was that's how i just reminded myself i said i work for them even though my
1: paycheck comes from
0: them josh you've been on um, i know i've yeah. been asking a lot of stuff so um i figure you have something
1: no, I mean you talked about your announcing deal and everything and um you know recently, yeah, you know, at the Indy five hundred we had Hinchcliffe and Townsend Bell kinda going at it. Um, you know, particularly when uh um, Santino Ferrucci. I, Santino Ferrucci, yeah, when he had his deal on Pitt Road and that was a really entertaining bit during that and kinda heard that maybe uh Townsend was kinda doing that on purpose, kinda cheering on for uh, Santino, there, but I wanted to know maybe were there any dynamics like that where you're maybe or somebody else was like maybe intentionally or you know playfully like kind of arguing or you know doing some sort of shooting the bit during the during the broadcast that you know you guys had that kind of same entertaining aspect?
2: We never we never sort of chose sides for that reason per se. I mean, obviously the magic that was Bobby, Uncle Bobby and Posey, which was genuinely real. They, they couldn't have been more different. And they saw the world so differently, which was made for kind of TV magic. And whichever one you liked, you thought the other one was intolerable. Which, but that's kind of why that tension worked. We didn't do that. It's funny. I, I used to always, before Paul Tracy got into TV, uh, Terry Lingner, It's funny, because Lingner wanted me back in the booth. Every year that I wasn't, after I left, the owners and a bunch of drivers would try to get me back in the booth and it never happened. I finally had a sit down with Randy Bernard. It was all set. The deal was all set. I forget whatever year that was. And he said, um, because what always happens, if you talk to cart, they said the network has full control over talent. I said, well, you and I both know, that you guys are the ones that, other than Indy, you you know, your partners. You're, you know, it's a time-buy of sorts. So, you have more juice than you want to let on, and it's your product that is at stake, so you really should, you know, I said, I think you should flex your muscle. Terry finally convinced him to do that. I met with, I flew to Indy, I met with Randy Bernard and and the gentleman uh, from IMS Productions, and they were all on board, and they said, they've asked us to hold off until this Comcast merger takes place. And so I said, okay, and it's supposed to happen the next month. The Comcast merger happened. Terry said, to Sam flood. He said, Hey, we need to deal with our IndyCar booth. Here's what I." He, Sam said. No, I know our booth. We're going with Wally Don And, and, and so, uh, Sam wanted to go with Wally the way I heard it. When Sam introduced himself to the IndyCar drivers and owners, Dario stood up and said, are you kidding me? He says, this is, he says, we need Kendall in the booth and Sam said listen give him a chance he hasn't even done a race da, da, da. a year from now if you don't like it you can tell me about it a year from now Then Dario supposedly stood up and said we put up with it he, he hasn't been in the garage area once once and and so there was always but it, it never happened again after that so um that's a just a, a behind the scenes story so there but with Paul I knew they when he retired they thought he'd be great at TV and I I was, I told Terry, I said, part of the problem you're going to have with Paul is Paul in a weird way is actually shy until he's comfortable. I said, so he needs to be paired with the right guy. Now, Terry wanted to try to get me, he he didn't give up. And so he was before that meeting, he was trying to get me in through the pit lane. And he said, you can't do the pits with your feet. I said, no, I really can't. And so that he says, well, I'm going to put Townsend in the pits. Well, Townsend, once Townsend's in the door, he's an animal. He he works his way into the corporate suite and he's he's been there ever since. And he's and he's good. So, um, and Townsend style-wise, we're not exactly the same, but um we're we're kind of related, if you will, in that way. And so, but I Paul, it took him a little while to find his feet, but Paul, needless to say, came out of his shell more more than some people would like, I guess. Uh, but um you so you I think you would have seen that dynamic with Paul and I cuz you know, we bicker like On a text message, phone, we bicker nonstop, and we we see the world differently, and we both are opinionated, and so um, it would have been interesting to see the two of us on the air, uh,
1: but that didn't happen.
0: Well, that's, I I think, the dynamic with being friends, too,
2: right?
1: And I, I saw yeah. your Twitter post or uh, retweet uh, earlier where um, Paul ran into the back of I think Bruno Juncker at Road America, and you had a really passionate argument uh, in favor of Paul there. And as I guess you know, that kind of shows the maybe the support there, but also I mean I think just the insight that you had, uh, you know, being as an announcer.
2: Yeah, it's funny I haven't communicated with him about that, but he and I got into it pretty big on text when uh, I think it was I think it was Bordet at Long Beach when someone swerved and he had to release the brakes. He ended up in the pit exit to avoid a big crash. He ended up going around someone and, and and, it was either Dixon or Bordet. It was one of the two and they got a penalty. And I said, this is what happened. The only reason he went into the pit lane was to avoid the crash. And he had to release the brake to make the steering correction. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not what happened. And then Bordet said, came to me when the next time I saw him, he goes, you were the only guy that understood what was going on there. That's exactly what happened. I said, yeah, well, I wasn't on the air, but um, I gave, so I, I call it the way I see it. Um, and I, you know, if I don't have a, if I don't know, I don't have a strong opinion, but if I know I have a strong opinion. So, uh, it's funny cause Paul thinks I, I have it in for him. You know, that's it, just part of his sort of shtick. Actually. I don't think he really does, but it's part of his shtick. And so a funny story about 98, when I was doing those five races, I was, a, I got, Hired by Team Cool Green to host an evening reception, you know, a little Q and A thing with their with the executives at the at their hospitality. I do that, and I'm eating afterwards. I'm in line, and Paul's wife Lisa at the time comes up to me and says, "I know you. You're the guy who says all that mean stuff about my husband on TV." This was at Houston, mind you, before he got into the fistfights. Yeah, very it was great. very green. So, so she said, "This was on Saturday, night, I think, and Friday or Saturday." So she, I said, "Well." I said that's one way to look at it i said another way to look at it is i'm the guy that talks about all the stupid stuff your husband does on the racetrack on tv and so (laughs) um i made a point so she got in my face and then i i made a point i said i'm gonna sit at their table so i sat at their table and then Paul was laughing because I've known Paul since ninety two. No, even before that. And she goes, Well, I have to admit, I really like your style, except when you're criticizing Paul. I said, Listen, I said, I have no I love Paul. I have no agenda. I said, but I have to call it the way I see it. She goes, Well, can you just be a little nicer? I said, I, I said, I'm not being mean. I'm just I'm and I usually don't editorialize. I don't say he's an idiot. I just say that was a horrible move. Or this well, when that happened at <laughs> at Houston in the race, Varsha comes to me. And I'm kind of like tongue tied. I'm like, well, I, 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 you know, I was thinking about what Lisa had said just the, the day before I said, yeah. I said, I'm not sure what I can add to the pictures. I think is what I said. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. That was an insane time there between him and Dario. And then Dario ended up, ended up, I think with, it was him and Juan Pablo in that championship too, in 99 or something. And that was where I think Dario lost on a tiebreaker or something.
1: Yeah, lost yeah. on a tiebreaker.
0: It might have been well, 90, one... 99 or no, 98. It was 99. I feel. Yeah,
1: I think that so. Was
2: 99. That was Greg so, Moore. The, yes, 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 Fontana. The one thing that people don't realize about Paul, I mean, Paul's kind of wired how Paul's wired, but when you get sort of incentives misaligned. And so Paul was kind of desperate for a deal because he got fired by Penske late. And he got on with Team Cool Green, but his deal was heavily incentive laden. So when you have a guy that has these huge winning bonuses, because you said we're not going to pay you a big salary, we're going to give you big winning bonuses, and then you tell the guy to hold station in second, what's he going to do? I mean, if if it's Paul, he's like no effing way. I it's I get I don't know what the bonus was. It might have been a hundred grand to win. It might have been two hundred grand. I don't know what it was. It was a big number. So you know, you're like, why would he just ignore an order like that? Well, that's exactly why he would ignore an order like that is because his incentive is to, to, he's got to win, you know? So it, there's always, it's, it's funny. Uh, there's always, that's what I think is so great about this sport, What I've always tried to bring in to the extent I'm able is some of those behind the scenes things. You know, I, I joke about PR people in, especially IndyCar, but not all types of racing now they should relabel them let's make sure everything's okay people let's make sure no one's mad at anyone people let's make sure no one says anything controversial people and it's 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 you know it's not what we need so um you know you've got one of the most authentically dramatic things but it's like the it's it's the inside joke everyone in the paddock knows about it but no one can talk about it or no one will talk about it so you know kudos to yeah, that's part of the secret of uh, Drive to Survive is somehow they got the clearance to bring some of that, at least some of it, forward.
1: No, yeah, I mean I agree. Drive to Survive has uh, definitely been a very interesting series, and you kind of see um, those dynamics that you know we haven't really heard about. Although I do think some of it might be a little bit fabricated, but certainly, yeah, it's definitely a um, you know good good insight, and it's definitely bringing a lot of interest and everything. But I wanted to ask you kind of. Pivoting back to, I guess, your origins and everything, you talked about going to school and, you know, going to UCLA, and obviously we know you had a finance degree uh, from there, but want wanted to know, like, did Having that degree give you any kind of advantage during, uh, you know, during your career. You, know, um, we talked about the finance and the business side of racing. Obviously, it's very expensive. But you know, having that background, did that give you any sort of kind of advantage during your career?
2: Huh, I don't know if it gave me. Eh, it's hard to quantify that. It's a good question. Um, it it helped me in a lot of ways. Some of the economics thing, just principles like uh, opportunity costs and stuff. Are great ways to think in the world, and they apply even in in racing. They apply to uh, you know, theoretic, you know, tangentially to sort of you know op- optimizing your 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 uh, technical package, your rules package, and so forth. So you know, on the business side, I always loved business. So you know, in terms of trying to understand it from the company's stand, it probably did help me in that regard. Um, I don't know if I can put my finger on it. You know, I. At the end of the day, you're hired because you are either getting the job done quick, you know, you you need to be presentable and the more uh, articulate you are, probably the better. Um, But um, yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, So, you know, it's, it's helped me my, I never have had a job per se in finance, but not, you know, investing and some of that stuff, obviously it it comes comes into play there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I see you tweet all the time about, you know, different, I guess investing things, and you know I've seen you talk about Tesla a lot i mean i'm I kind of do a little bit of investing on my own and everything, so kind of want to yeah guess ask about that like what what's kind of given you an opportunity to you know keep uh interest in that side on the I guess the market we can talk about that a little bit, but what's been kind of your I guess goal. I guess as kind of an investor, and you know, do you do, do day trading, or Are you more of a swing trader? Do you do options, or you just stay with just regular common shares? That's a good question. Um,
2: it's it's evolved. Um, I was always more an investor before. I in uh, what year was it? I want to say it was in right after I retired. I stumbled onto Investors Business Daily. William J O'Neill just passed away a couple of weeks ago. Um, changed my view of things and kind of changed my life. I mean, he was the first person that sort of turned the world upside down in terms of you've got to aggressively limit your losses. That's the only thing you can't recover from, whether you're a long-term investor. Most long-term investors have been brainwashed into buy and hold no matter what. That works until it doesn't. In the big drawdowns, you get crushed. And so it's... So I... I remember picking up that paper in my retirement, and I had no nothing, no, nothing but time. I'd go to the coffee shop every morning, and I would. And something about it resonated. It was I did. It was like Greek, but I said, "There's something to this." And so, what his philosophy is combining fundamentals, where you screen the companies by the ones that have the good earnings growth, sales growth, all, return on equity, all of those things. But your timing decisions are based more on technical, which is chart patterns. And most people are either fundamentals or they're technical. He combined them both, which I think dramatically boosts your uh, risk-reward in your favor. So that's what I've done for the longest time. But I've always sort of wondered about short-term trading because technicals really allow you to not perfectly time the market, but pretty consistently uh, time the market to a large degree. And so I said, this has to work on a shorter term. So during COVID, I really kind of went to school big time on trying to understand and, and do short term, literally day trading, I guess. Um and I I've done it. I I feel like it's comparing it to my driving, it's like I'm a like I'm a top amateur right now. I'm like I'm I, I could probably win a, a national championship at the runoffs, but I'm not pro and I'm not world class, you know. I I can see that I'm getting better. And and so again, that, that really protecting against losses is what blows up most traders of all types, especially day traders. And so um I've had some really good runs and a lot of times I kind of tread water um right. <laughs> depending on the market. So uh now I will I, I will take this moment to get on my soapbox about two things. One I touched on, which is, you know. Cutting your losses, you got to have some metric to get you out of the market. People spend all their time on how to buy their stock to invest in and they'll ride them all the way down. And we saw that during the, the internet meltdown. Um, you saw with Microsoft in the late 90s. Microsoft was on a moonshot and then it went sideways for literally 15 years. So you got to have something that tells you something has changed, but especially the, you know, the the, the big drawdown. So um, my mother has invested heavily in Apple and it's worked out swimmingly for her. But I said, you know, if Apple ever falters, she'll ride it all I don't know if it'll ever go to zero. She'd ride it all the way down because it, it's what took you all the way there. So you gotta have something that tells you to get out. I use the 50-day moving average as kind of a an absolute for me. Yep. I won't own anything below its 50-day moving average. So if some someone comes to me, if Elon Musk calls me and says, hey, you got to buy this stock or, or CEO, I, I, I look, and if it's under its 50-day, sorry. I'll, I'll put it on my watch list and I'll watch it. And if it gets back above its 50 day, then I'll take a pilot or whatever. So that's one is, is have some way to get out. So you don't take huge losses. Don't let a big gain turn into a loss and don't let a new position turn into a big loss because that's the only thing you can't recover from. So that's one. And the other is it's for common people. I think a lot of people never invest because they think what's a couple thousand bucks going to do. This is never going to do anything for me. And I think it's, you know, you can always rationalize the new iPhone, the new pair of shoes, the little the concert tickets or whatever, and it's hard. But the only, the surest way to get wealthy is to save and invest over a long period. It's, it's, it's hard. Now, you can invent a widget. You can invent an app, and that's a good way to do it if you hit. But the only sure way on a normal salary, if you live beneath your means and invest over 30 or 40 years and don't take any big losses, you will be wealthy, period, period. So that's my little soapbox for people, especially young people, to yeah. uh to do it so um any I'm happy to talk investing or even do a separate <laughs> one on that, but i love it. yeah, I love it we might all the eyes are glazing over from the race people like oh so,
1: no, I mean it's a, no, it's a good hobby
0: <laughs> and josh's that was the one thing that we talked about how that was the one piece that following you and your posts uh definitely connects with that i'm i mean i'm learning and some of it is foreign i do a little bit of investing but it's not to the level that you guys do so it's always but i'm always open to learning so uh now i've i've learned how how great of a racer you are and now i get to learn uh, about how you invest and how you've been able to go and flip properties, including the one you're sitting in front of and, and all the stuff and, and keep on. I mean, I think the other thing you have to do is also do, I always joke around with, um, with the people that I'm friends with or people that I meet that have been married for a long time. I think you all have to go and like write a book or write like a few lines, both, both spouse, both parts of the couple and write one thing or like five things that work for you. for your because i think that would also be great in our day and age of right now with the way things are and people breaking up at such a high level and all the nonsense to stay together as long as you and your wife have done and so many other couples are 30 years and 40 years and 50 years it's a totally different dynamic than it was back in those days people would figure things out or try to versus now it's like oh no that's the end of it
2: well our story is is a little more involved namely we were separated for 10 years and anyone who knows me knows that part of the story but mm-hmm. and most a lot of people in racing do the so when we got back together we didn't go through the normal stages of dating and we both had worked hard to be okay on our own and we'll, Then when we started getting back together, the minute there was a little disagreement, both of us, one or the other, would be like, I don't need this. And so what it made me realize is, and that's one thing I think that's actually lacking in today's things is actual commitment. So obviously you want to choose wisely, but people always think divorce is an option and it is an option, but if you, if you're fully committed, they never get to a 12, they get like, this sucks, but we gotta figure this out. So there's a difference between you having one foot in the boat and one foot out of the boat. And the minute there's a problem, you're like, I-, I, can be- I don't need this. And so if both sides are truly committed, it's a lot easier to work-, work through stuff. And so, you know, you shouldn't be the only one committed if the other party's got one foot in and one foot out. But if both are committed, you, you kind of can work through it all, really. Um, because if both are committed, by definition, you kind of have to be willing to, uh, you know, look at yourself. You know, if only one side's committed to making it work, and the other one's like, "I'll, I'll take everything you can give," that that doesn't work. And I don't advocate sticking around if you're you're being used up. So. I we'll covered all covered all here on the GSP.
0: Yeah, I know. Um I mean, you are a very knowledgeable man, and so we were hitting multiple angles here um i've we 've kept you for i think an hour and a half so i will um I will say i mean Josh, do you have anything else or
1: i mean i you know i think think we covered everything
0: yeah, we definitely and uh t k thank you so much it 's been an honor to be able to talk to you for this long and for Josh and I, I mean it's it's just been awesome to have you on and talking about all the different things we talked about. I didn't get to ask about the Trans Am Mopar deal, but that's okay. Um that was kind of brief, but I asked you about the Viper thing, so I'm still happy. Uh but um thank you so much for coming on. Give my best to Pony. I know she's in in the light over there, so walking in and out so and to the cats and all the other assorted um Furry friends that you have. um Thank you so much, man. Uh, you're one of my racing heroes, and um to be able to talk to you and have this time has just been awesome.
2: Well, kudos to both of you for you know, getting to this milestone. Uh, 100 and what shows? What is this?
0: 73, or yeah, 70- 73. 173. 173. Yep. Yeah.
2: 173. Well, kudos to you guys, and uh, hopefully the next one won't take two years to orchestrate. Uh, you know, I'm ha- happy to come back uh, on a periodic basis, but. Uh, Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. And uh, we'll see you soon.
0: All right. Thank you Thank so you. much, Tommy. Um, Tommy Kendall, the motorsports legend who also knows a lot about a lot of things. So if you really need an answer, it seems like TK knows it. Um, that's probably why IndyCar and Randy Bernard wanted him back and then they screwed it up. Uh, with Wally, which is kind of interesting since Wally and him never really crossed paths in Trans Am, but I think I think about our days in NASCAR, or when we watched NASCAR in the early 2000s and they randomly picked Wally Dahlen back to be in the booth with AB and BP. It made no sense then. Uh, He became better over time, but... He wasn't an IndyCar guy. His dad was. Um, They would have been better off with TK. And that year was a great year in 2011 until, of course, um, or 2012, I think was. Yeah, because NBC. Oh, no, that's right. That was during the days of Versus. And then ABC had like a handful of races with Marty Reed making no sense. And then, um, and, uh, Eddie Cheever and Scott Goodyear kind of having that same dynamic that you brought up with Posey and, uh, and, uh, uncle Bobby, but much less likable but um thank you so much tommy uh for coming on and hopefully we can do this again uh we might have to do a spin-off episode on investing just for the sake of uh society but uh definitely we'll talk racing no problem um thank you man
2: all right
1: deal cheers
0: guys cheers thanks um all right so yeah we got to move
1: red yeah if if you want to hang up you have to hit the red circle okay all right guys cheers
2: Yeah. Thank
0: you. All right. Yeah, yeah right, no because uh, yeah, sure, right. sure but... yeah, he was gonna stay on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's all good. Um, that was a blast, and now we can get. Get on with the regular stuff. Not okay, every day late. you get to have a motorsports icon on the show. So um probably the best thing that's happened to me in a in a week or two. So I'm just internally grateful. Yeah. Um we'll get this show out. That's I won't have any problem getting this show out. Um so yeah, let's get into uh we'll talk about NASCAR first, Josh. Um connecting it of course to TK, formally going in, um formally going in uh racing there and having great success or almost winning it's funny how Wally Dallenbach also had a such similar situation uh in the 1995 uh Watkins Glen race when they threw a phantom yellow um and when he was driving the 22 car um and then they cost that cost him the race. Uh, Mark Martin ended up uh ending his or continuing his win streak and he won 3 years in a row largely because of that. Um but yesterday it was a little more straightforward. Uh, it was definitely uh Martin Truex Jr.'s show, a fourth win at at Sonoma, a 33rd career win. If somebody told me that a few years ago when I saw him uh, saw Martin Truex win in the '78 car, and that was his third career victory. And I think it was like back in 2015. And if somebody had told me he would have 30 victories between then and now, wouldn't have believed it. But ever since 2015 or whatever, uh, Martin Truex has become a different guy, especially in the Cup Series. And yes, last year was an off year, but this year it looks like he's back to what his usual um, standard was. It's basically there was three three guys that were dominant it was Danny Hamlin who started on pole but wrecked his Truex and Kyle Busch that was really the entire race uh only two cautions in the whole entire race um so that so it was a pretty clean quiet day uh the pace of Martin Truex though was undeniable second win of the year and um Solidifies himself in the playoffs, and not like I think he was really worried about it the way the parody is this year. But uh, dominant performance of one of his best racetracks, Josh, um, as they go into the off week for Father's Day weekend.
1: Yeah, I mean Martin Truex went out and flat out spanked the field this weekend. I think, although um, you know, it wasn't wasn't easy though, and definitely had a lot of challenge from uh, Kyle Busch, and then you know also had to kind of battle with his teammate early on uh, in Denny Hamlin and. Um, You know, comes out of it with second win and fourth win, like you said, at uh, Sonoma. And, you know, he's a guy that we don't really think of him as a road course racer. He doesn't really have the, you know, stats or, well, I mean, he does now, but um, I guess his persona as a race car driver, you know, we don't really see him really as a road racer but you know over uh time now he's really done well at this racetrack in particular he's uh started to do well at Watkins Glen as well had a chance to win there um a few times you know in the last couple of years and everything but um you know he's definitely uh been somebody uh who's quietly become a really good uh road course driver and um you you have to give him a lot of credit but also you know joe gibbs racing was in toyota for the most part was really good all weekend so they really did a excellent job there of course um and yeah very very clean race for the most part of course um you know danny hamlin uh ran into the turn 12 wall coming to the start finish line and it ended his day so maybe he'll uh you know, ask for NASCAR to suspend the wall or something uh as actions detrimental to stock car racing or something like that uh and you know that was a pretty interesting uh twist to the race of course um, really the only real uh drama that happened uh in that event um you know of course late, late race yellows a uh, um have been a thing in the past in Sonoma, but they weren't really a thing uh, yesterday. And of course, we saw at the end Tyler Reddick also uh, take a flat tire towards the very end, and then we saw him uh, kind of loop back to the uh, pits, um, you know, in that, I guess, area of pavement uh, in- inside uh, turn 11 there. So uh, great. Uh, situational awareness for him to uh, do that and save a yellow for NASCAR because otherwise would have stopped on the track and caused another yellow and you know maybe given Kyle Bush an opportunity to get up to uh, Martin Trix and race side by side into turn one maybe do a little uh, bonsai move like Jerry Nadeau did back in 97 so at Sonoma but uh, definitely uh, a clean race there i mean you know it's not exactly you know super entertaining i mean it did find it a little bit in- intriguing though with you know especially kyle bush uh ha- having uh, some ability and of course he's having a kind of a uh resilient year and of course uh you won at uh talladega earlier this year and then um you know back in his 08 year when he had that big year he won at Talladega and at Sonoma so there was always uh, that possibility and plus the eight car and road course has been really good uh, so there was always that possibility but t just kind of drove away from him uh, you know at, at the end of the day um, initially off of that final restart Kyle Busch had a uh, chance he was you know within a couple of car lengths, but then slowly but surely you know Truex went out and uh, pulled away from there, so you know Truex was able to uh, get the win and yeah get his spot. Pretty much solidified when it comes to the playoffs. So, you know, we'll see um, if he's able to, you know, come out to some of these other road courses and get something, or if, um, you know, this is just him being really good at Sonoma. But, you know, we'll have to look out for him later on in the year as, you know, potentially a guy that uh, is a contender, especially after last year not making the cut and getting zero wins, uh, really tough deal there for him. But, you know, now on the other end here, he, um, is solidly a contender here this year and, you know, went out and partied with, uh, DJ Diesel, AKA Shaq after the race. So always a good bit when you're able to, uh, celebrate and party with Shaq. So yeah, it was, a maybe not the most exciting one, but, you know, especially with no stage yellows, it was definitely a fairly intriguing one, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's Snoroma for a reason. And, uh, I mean, the real battle was between those two, uh, three guys, uh, because after that, I think the rest of the field led nine laps. So it was really those guys, the typical guys with Gibbs and Hendrick, which has been a deal all year kind of stood out as well. Um, Truex over Kyle Busch. Joey Logano finishes third. Chris Busher fourth for uh, RFK, continuing his uh, recent streak on road courses. William Clyde Elliott second finished fifth. Tried to do alternate strategy, didn't work out. AJ Allmendinger was sixth. Michael McDowell was seventh. He was one of the guys that I think really had a fast race car, but the pit sequences did go out in his favor. Larson... Uh, who actually qualified the worst he's ever qualified at Sonoma, and he came back into the top 10. Christopher Bell and Ross Chastain round out the top 10. Kevin Harvick in his last race in Sonoma as a driver. Finished 11th. Oh, Richard actually got a 12th place finish, there was a time when he couldn't finish in the top 25 on a road course. I guess that 47 team is doing something. Uh, Yeah, and then there's a few other guys that scored stage points. But yeah, Redick and Hamlin were the front row. Uh, Didn't have anything to show for it after yesterday. Uh, Ryan Blaney was the last car on the lead lap in 31st. Uh, The points as we uh, go into the off week uh, before Nashville, I mean, Byron and Bush are one and two in terms of playoff standings. Uh, Martin Truex leads the points overall by 13 over William Byron. And um, so that means you should probably be ahead of Kyle Larson under that. Uh, Ryan Blaney is third, tied for third, it looks like. And so he's 24 points back with Ross Chastain. And then 25 points back in fifth is Kevin Harvick. The bubble is three points, Alex Bowman over Daniel Suarez, the defending race winner, uh, at Sonoma. Keebler Gibbs is minus 11, Michael McDowell minus 14. So that's where, where they stand going into Nashville. Uh, AJ Allmendinger is 19 points behind McDowell. So, uh, he is 30 points out of seventeenth, 33 out of sixteenth. So that's that right there. Uh, Moved to the Xfinity series, did not watch the race. I was not home. Uh, I was at a party and had enough sake to go and last a lifetime, kind of fitting the whole um, Jägermeister uh, story that TK had. Uh, Eric Almirillo won the DoorDash 250. Uh, it Almendinger second, Kyle Larson from pole, finished 30, led the most laps. Keebler Gibbs fourth, Parker Kligerman fifth. Cole Custer, Justin Allgaier, Austin Hill, Sammy Smith, Sam Mayer round out the top 10. Uh, they only had two cautions in this race also, so that re- didn't really take too long. Uh, 79 laps, so yeah, two two 250 miles. Uh, Al Merola, so top four were cup guys. Uh, Chastain ran he finished 18th ty dillon finished 23rd uh trying to see uh, uh fail to qualify a yeah, pool honeyman and mason felipe uh, but yeah the in terms of the xfinity series larson dominated but late in the race uh got passed or late race restart uh didn't work out for him and uh they, they
1: ran into the tires
0: ran into the tires there but recovered to finish third But Eric Almirola gets RSS Racing their first ever victory in the Xfinity series. Uh, Michael Roberts Construction has been on uh, Zane Smith's vehicles over time Uh, when he won the championship last November. He had MRC on the truck, so a West Coast-based company uh Eric Almarola last win was New Hampshire a couple of years ago when it got too dark and they had to call the race early I think it was like 2 years ago, yeah, two uh, years ago and uh it will be yeah uh, for sure in a couple of weeks cuz he ain't going to win a cup race this year um so credit to him and um pretty sure big deal for him and his family uh big deal for RSS racing too to be fair but um yeah Larson had it pretty much locked up there wasn't a whole lot That happened. Otherwise, the main players stayed up there the whole day, uh, for the most part. Um, I mean, and but you know, when you have four Cup guys, when you have as many Cup guys as you had in this field, it was probably going to end up being what it ended up being. I think we both went and picked Cup guys, anyways. I'm just trying to remember offhand. Uh, uh, Yeah,
1: I think, and I picked. Yeah, and and you picked
0: Almendinger, and then my pick for the Cup series was an absolute disaster and um keebler gibbs looked better than what it ended up being so yeah the picks really went well um unlike picking stocks uh don't trust me to make picks if you really want to bet generally speaking they don't go so well but um do you have anything to add to that for the xfinity series or
1: i mean you know i mean you basically told the story there but i mean at at the end uh that last set of cautions kind of shuffled the field a little bit and you know the announcers kind of brought up Eric Almirola as kind of a guy that um if he had enough pace and if he was up front that he could you know really um potentially have an opportunity there to have a win uh right there and you know had the last restart in the lead and then Kyle Larson you know got shuffled back a little bit but had passed uh, most of the guys on the first lap or two of that re- uh, final restart but then you know he kept Dogging Eric Almirola throughout that last uh, you know set of green flag laps, but then handful of laps ago, um, just makes a little bit too much of a. Uh, you Know too much, of a little bit of a turn to the right and you know knocks down the tires and it just immediately goes straight left, uh, coming out of the exit of turn 11. So, um, yeah, just a missed opportunity for Kyle Larson, rare mistake for him, but yeah, at the end of the day, uh, gives Eric Almorola, like you said, a chance to score a victory for a smaller team and you know, it definitely gives him a chance to be in victory lane maybe one last time as he's you know, maybe not coming back to nascar at least full-time uh, on the cup side so we'll see what his feature ends up being but um at least a little bit of a different wrinkle there and you know not always the best car most dominant car is going to win a race there uh at you know in any any level
0: yeah and that's and i mean it's just being in the right place at the right time don't go and put yourself in a bad situation that's kind of what road racing used to be uh and so in that Xfinity race when you had Larson make a rare mistake um that was a good job by Almirola to go and do that um and credit to RSS Racing uh been for uh giving him a good car I don't know if it was an SHR car uh but you know it is what it is Austin Hill Goes into the off week, uh, still leading by with the win points, but John Hunter Nemechek leads regular season standings. He's second. Then you have uh, Allgaier, Custer, Chandler Smith, Sammy Smith, and Jeb Burton, who are all in with wins. Josh Berry, Sheldon Creed are pretty solid right now points-wise Sam Myers 41 over the cut line Riley Herbst plus 27 and Daniel Hemrick is plus 18 over Parker Kligerman uh, minus nine a further nine points back is Bruckshot Jones uh, so we'll see what happens as we move towards uh, the Nashville race here in a couple of weeks time all right so move to the roundup it's the 24 Hours of Le Mans, as we mentioned earlier with Tommy, uh, talking about Ferrari winning 50 years after the last time they were there as a factory effort. Alexander Peraguiti, James Collado, and former Formula 1 driver Antonio Antonio Giovinazzi gets the victory. Um, they run 342 laps overall. Uh, Toyota number 8, the one remaining Toyota, uh, Sebastian Buemi, Brendan Hartley, and Rio Hirakawa finished one minute, 21.793, uh, back of the 51 Ferrari and the Cadillac racing team, the Ganassi team, uh, finished third and fourth, their regular WEC car with Earl Bamba, Alex Lynn, and Richard Westbrook finished third, a lap down, And a further lap back was the uh, W.E. or the IMSA car with Sebastian Bourdais, Renger van de Zande, and Scott Dixon. Uh, Then after that, you got a little bit more separation. The other Ferrari, Antonio Fuco, Miguel Molina, Nicholas Nielsen, finished fifth. The two Glickenhaus cars and the first Peugeot uh, finished eighth overall. The inter europol competition, number 34, a Polish run, small Polish run outfit. Uh... Didn't have radio at the end of the race, but somehow or another uh, outlasted uh, Team WRT with uh, Rui Andrade, Louis Delatrasse, and Robert Kubica. Uh, The Duquesne effort, uh, Rene Binder, Pino, and Neil Yanni round out the uh, podium for LMP2. Those were ninth through 11th place. Um, There's a couple other. The first GTM car was, of course, the Chevy Corvette. Ben Keating, Nikki Casberg, and Nicholas Verone uh, finished a lap ahead of the ORT by T.F. Aston, Al Harthy, Michael Dynan, Charlie Eastwood, and then the GR Racing Porsche, Wainwright, Barker, Para, uh, finished just ahead, 5.3 seconds ahead of the Iron Dames. The ladies ran really well. All race long had the lead for a period of time. Unfortunately, weren't able to uh, get the podium there. Uh, the Hendrick Motorsports of uh, Garage 56 car actually, even though they're not theoretically classified, finished 39th. Uh, had gearbox problems. Uh, had to go and spend time in in the garage to go and replace the gearbox. But was, was running really fast. I mean, when you look at the GT. Standings. I mean, you're talking about what five they qualified faster than all the GTM cars yeah. five, six, seven, eight, nine. They finished theoretically. If they were in class, they would have been 10th in class. But uh, Jimmy Johnson, Mike Rockefeller, Jensen Button did a great job. They finished the race. Uh, the car was a revelation. You know, I said it, I think, yesterday or whatever. I said, Well, it's interesting when you give somebody who actually knows how to build a good race car uh a a generally a clean sheet you could see what can happen with it and that's what happened with uh, chad canouse and a lot of the the men and women that were involved in this program they took what is generally right now not exactly the greatest piece of machinery uh racing uh out on the cup circuit and made it into a really racy car that was able to compete at Le Mans and not be make a total fool out of themselves. Uh, 50 years after the last time a NASCAR vehicle drove at Le Mans. So that's the results there. Uh, the point standings as uh, a classification, I guess that's what it is. Uh, season 23 results. So right now in... Yeah, so FIA World So World Cup for hypercar teams. Oh, so that's for Jota, Hertz team Jota for the uh, privateer effort so they're going to win their own thing the world endurance championship manufacturer points it's 18 points between toyota and ferrari right now and then the hypercar championship drivers championship the eight team of hartley Hirakawa, and buemi lead by uh 18 and 25 points over the 51 team and then the cadillac number two uh, is third. They're, they're third in points. The second Ferrari and the other Toyota, and then the first Porsche. So that's for World Endurance Cham- Drivers Championship. Uh, the LMP2 drivers, Louis Delatraz, Robert Kubica, and Rui Andrade, lead by four points over the uh, the team interpol team and then uh we get the team's team w r t over inter europol united auto sport twenty points out in third g t m drivers ben keating Nikki Kasperg and Nicholas Verone lead the points over Ahmad Al Arty, Charlie Eastwood, Michael Dynan, the the and it's a huge gap. Uh, and they have uh as it stands right now, they they're it looks like they're gonna lock up the championship more than likely at Monza here in a few weeks' time. And that'll be huge for the Corvette racing team and for uh Ben Keating as well. We'll go and move forward, go to Moto GP, uh Peko Bagnaya went and won in uh, at home in Mugello Ducati dominated no shock uh, it seems like every race anymore Ducati's round took the top four spots Peko Bagnaia over Jorge Martin by 1.067 seconds Joan Zarco was third to give Prima Pramac a Double podium, nearly just under two seconds behind Luca Marini, finished third, Brad Binder was fifth. The standings, point standings, heading into uh, Soxen Ring this coming weekend. Bagnaia pulls away from Marco Besecki, who had a rough weekend, uh, 21 points ahead and uh, in who's he's in second and then was a 24 yeah 24 points uh, is Jorge Martin in third Binder and Zarco round out the top five in points in Moto2 category uh, Pedro Acosta with another win uh, over Tony Arbolino Jake Dixon Aaron Canette Celestino Vietti etc cetera, etc cetera. Joe Roberts actually finished 12th So, um, beat his teammate Dennis Fogia. Um, I agree, gets the last point there. Uh, Sean Dylan Kelly, they're sponsored by OnlyFans. Ah, okay. Uh, money. (laughs) It is good money. I, I gotta say, OnlyFans, uh, probably could get some of the. Chicks that make their money on there to get on the bikes. I think it would probably be better than uh, what the hell they're doing. Uh, American racing. I don't know what happened where the other American racing rider is unless he crashed and he didn't make it or did not finish the first lap. There was a five-bike incident to start the race. SDK is the only American racing uh, rider there. I don't... Or the British guy they have there, too. Whatever. And then the point standings for Moto2... Uh heading into uh soxon Ring. Acostas 20 points beyond Arbolino. And then there's a huge gap to Alonzo Lopez, Salik, and Aaron Kinnett. Um that's pretty close between Lopez, Salek, Kinet, and Jake Dixon. Only eight points separating those guys. Um Joe Roberts moves up to seventeenth in points. He's right now, I think the goal I don't think getting to 10th is really a goal or likely, but he could move himself up. He's only 14 points out of 12, so SDK there. Yeah, Rory Skinner wasn't there either, so that's the guy I was talking about, the other American racing bike. NHRA raced at uh, Bristol, but they also were finishing out the New England Nationals. Justin Ashley ended up winning... Uh, both the New England Nationals there, and then also win in Thunder Valley. Uh, Ron Caps, uh, Eric Anders get their uh, get their first wins of 2023 in uh, Funny Car and Pro Stock respectively. And then what is it? Yeah, yeah and then what is it? Uh, uh Bob Tasca won uh, the Funny Car. Class for the New England Nationals. Steve Johnson wins in Pro Stock Motorcycle. So uh, credit to him. As Enders ends up beating Derek Kramer in the final. Uh, Ron Caps beat uh, Alexis DeJoria, And then Justin Ashley beat Antron Brown, who came from the 15th spot to get into the final. Steve Johnson beat Gage Herrera, who basically um, uh, has been dominant in this class. So for... For Steve Johnson, the Wiley veteran, been around forever in this class to go and get that victory. Credit to him on that. They'll be back in a couple of weeks' time uh for their next race, which will be in um Norwalk, Ohio for Summit Racing Equipment Nationals before they go on the Western Swing. Next race, supercars at Hidden Valley, they'll be going on going there this weekend uh as we've been saying all year it's Chevrolet is dominating the uh, Erebus team first and second in points the Red Bulls are with SVG and Brock Feeney are fourth and fifth Chaz Mostert's the one uh person in between that with the walk and Chandra United Mobile One Ford Cam Waters uh, and a Ford David Reynolds, Will Davison, so four Fords among six Chevys. The Chevys are dominating. Uh, Brody Kostecki leads the points over his teammate Will Brown by 87. We'll see how that all works out. And then, last but not least, we'll mention we'll mention the uh, Indy next at uh, Road America. Uh, talk the points briefly, which is Christian Rasmussen leading by two over his teammate Nolan Siegel, Hunter McElray, third, Daniel Frostford, Jacob Abel, fifth, uh, Louis Foster, Reese Gold, Matteo Nannini, James Rowe, Enam Ahmed, tied with Ernie Francis Jr. for 10th in points, and then get further back, Jamie Chadwick, 17th in points, uh, so not the absolute worst, but not great either. We'll move forward then, get into the previews two races this weekend on the uh, Father's Day weekend. Uh, first one, the Canadian Grand Prix. I mean, I think it's gotten old at this point. Uh, you I know, mean, we both picking Max Verstappen or who's I mean, which I don't know who picked first last week. I keep uh-huh. try or
1: I mean, we have it there in the...
0: Yeah, so I'll look in the picks channel. So, yeah, I picked first last. So you can go and pick uh, pick Max Verstappen. I'll just get ahead of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Max Verstappen wins the uh, Canadian Grand Prix this weekend. Um, I think it's reasonable, say, for podium. You know, I'm going to go with Fernando Alonso. He hasn't finished up in the podium recently. So I'll go with him to finish second. Plus... You know, he did do really well, uh, at least in qualifying last year at this event. Uh, Of course, um, did have some issues towards the end of the race. Uh, but now seems like this year's car uh, definitely a lot more uh, reliable uh, with Aston Martin and definitely one of the more surprising uh, stories this year in Formula One. So uh, definitely um, something that you look out for there. Um, And then I think Sergio Perez uh, gets third place, gets back on the podium last couple of races, hasn't been able to get quite up there. So yeah, that's, that's what I'll go with this weekend. I think it's pretty straightforward.
0: Yeah. Um, I usually would go and go and deviate off of it. Um, I'm not, uh, in terms of the winner, uh, to win. But I will go with Lewis Hamilton in second and Alonzo in third. So Hamilton, Alonzo, podium. I mean, we have to see what upgrades some of these teams bring to this race because we're getting into a busier time of the schedule uh, after they cancel that, so then so you have Spain, then you have Canada, and then you have—I mean—it keeps on bumping me. So then, after Canada, you have a couple of weeks uh, between that race, and then Austria. Then you'll race that race and great in the British Grand Prix back to back. Then there'll be a couple of weeks off before Hungary and in Belgium, which for the first time in, I don't know, in decades uh, happens before the summer break, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, we'll see what some of these teams bring to the table. Uh, Renault, of course, or I mean, Alpine has shown to have some more pace. Last race in Spain, there were some struggles for Alonso and for Aston Martin. Will they come back? Uh, what can uh, what can Ferrari do uh, in this spot? All great, worthwhile questions, to say the least. One that'll be a little bit more interesting race will be the IndyCar Series at Road America, bringing up uh, the Siebkin's bar uh, I with Tommy Kendall was talking about it when he was sitting at Station 5 hungover um one of the great passing zones there the sancio grand prix at road america uh they repaved the racetrack the moto america ride teams and riders were there this past weekend racing on on that track so interesting uh to see they'll probably be setting uh track records uh this uh, weekend because it'll be the smoothest this track has been since, uh, IndyCar returned to, uh, to Road America. Um, but you know, I think for, uh, the, for this race, I'm trying to think offhand who uh, would be someone, that'd be a good choice. I mean, Paddle Ward is one there. Pillow has been really good there. Uh, you know, Scott Dixon, Power, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can just name the whole entire effing grid if I really wanted to, but, uh, vast majority of the grid. But,
2: uh, let me see,
0: let me see. Elkhart Lake. So since IndyCar, uh, returned to the racetrack in 2007, then they've been there since 2016. Uh, Joseph Newgarden won last year. He's won there twice. Uh, Pelot won there in his championship year in 21. Rosenquist won his one and only IndyCar race there in the 10 car for Ganassi. Dixon has won there twice. Rossi when he drove the Napa car. And then um, Power. So I thought that Pato awarded one. He came close to winning the race. That was my mistake. I didn't. Uh, So, I mean, for Pato, he... Probably needs to get back on track. It's been uh, been a rough couple of races. Uh, Detroit was, was not good, and neither was the Indianapolis 500. Uh, at the end there, I say the Pato Award goes and gets back on track. Uh, IndyCar at Road America. And uh, I'll say Pato Award as a winner to win. And then uh, when it comes to wild card choice Uh, this gets hard now and with the points the way they are you have you have what 27 drivers but now it's really 26 because connor daly got fired so so 13 so yeah the top 13 that counts christian lungard uh who am i gonna pick i'm gonna go with i'm gonna go with callum lot. why not uh Calamilot will be my uh, wild card selection. Junkos Hollanders had pace on and off here through the entire season uh so uh, as a wild card so that'll be my those are my choices uh what do you what about you josh what do you see for uh this race here this weekend at road america
1: yeah i mean i I those are some interesting picks there um but for me you know i'm gonna go with actually the other mclaren car in alexander rossi obviously i think he's been the best out of the three. McLaren entries this year. Um, Of course, uh, had a pretty good run a couple weeks ago at uh, Detroit at the uh, Grand Prix there, and uh, has been generally been consistent so far uh, to start the year, and they've only continued will only continue to uh, get better. Um, and I think Road America is definitely a track where he can excel at, and especially McLaren. Of course, they had pace there last year, like you said, with Pato Award. But uh, you know, I think that Alexander Rossi has just been the best out of those three uh, this year, and I think he finally gets his first win. Uh, you know, with his new team uh, here so that's so i'll pick um and then my wild card uh i'm gonna go with uh renas vk which might be an interesting selection uh but i feel like this is a good track for him um you know he actually did miss a race here a couple years ago at this race uh back in 2021 uh but you know at the same time i feel like you know this is a um good opportunity you know for um head carpenter racing of course uh they let go of uh connor daily but maybe brian hunter ray brings in some knowledge into that team um that might help them on on the road courses or anything and certainly might get some value from you know having a veteran teammate like that uh to lean on uh so you know i'd like to see what what he's able to do maybe get a you know top 10 or something out of it which i don't feel like is too crazy for him you know he did have a road course win out at uh, Indy Grand Prix a couple years ago. So, I mean, it's not that far fetched for him to, I think, do uh, pretty decently this weekend here at Road America.
0: Yeah, and that's a good point you bring up about Captain America uh, getting back in a full time ride for the rest of the season, driving for ECR. Uh, it's kind of a round, it kind of uh, circ- you know, how the way how circuitous things go in motorsport. Once upon a time, uh, Ryan Hunter Ray drove for Vision Racing, which was run by Ed Carpenter's stepfather, Tony George, uh, back in the day. Uh, so it's interesting how that all works out. That now ECR hires him. Uh, Connor Daly will be running the uh, Nitro Rally Cross this weekend with uh, Travis Pastrana and them, uh I think in Oklahoma somewhere. Uh, so see what happens with that first weekend with uh, uh, Ryan hunter reay back in a full-time seat what comes of that if there are any real changes come from that um other than that i don't really think there's any major changes that have taken place to really talk about but we will definitely bring up everything that went on in montreal and also at road america next week on the gsp josh it's your time uh tk gave you uh props for winning the indy 500 which is well-deserved, of course. But you definitely earned it. You won it. Uh, so let's uh, hear about what's going on in the world of iRacing and in the sim uh, world and gaming uh, with your sim segment.
1: Yeah, of course. And, yeah, I was glad to be able to flex that one there earlier. But, of course, um, uh, iRacing, of course, very fun uh, time to play uh, on there. But, you know, this week um, we're actually... well I'll talk about is what we did in... <clears throat> Uh, week 13 last week uh, with the 87 car running with the trucks and the uh, gen 4 cup car at daytona and talladega that was actually pretty fun uh doing that one um that was a uh, pretty interesting being able to run that closely uh amongst the 87 cars at regular daytona with our uh, regular meaning the um, current configuration with the pavement and everything with how it is now but uh Interesting how he's like you he really had to manage the tire wear at Tal or Daytona and have to lift in the center of the corners and really have to um take care of the right front and the right rear uh at that track. Um, but you could also go uh full throttle or close to the first couple of laps and definitely uh, you know, make up positions and stuff and uh there's a couple of times where I kind of wrecked out towards the end but then took the pit stop and then came back and was actually able to make up a pretty considerable amount of time even though I was lapped down to in terms of seconds to the leaders so it's pretty interesting to be able to see just how new tires on an 87 car do on a reef paved Daytona compared to you know the leaders maybe running the whole race on old tires and then having to also navigate traffic of the trucks and the uh, gen 4 cup cars there so Um, yeah, it was definitely kind of interesting there, but I mean, it didn't count for anything. It's all exhibition. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, kind of what I did, uh, last week on iRacing kind of, kind of, uh, you know, been busy with some other stuff there. So, um, hadn't really been able to iRace too much, uh, but, um, and also don't know how much I'm going to iRace this week, but I did, uh, set up my laptop, uh, to have iRacing on it, uh, so I could... Uh, do uh, do that in my free time this week, um, so I'll be doing that, uh, but I'll be dealing with the controller, so I'm going to have to try and see how does that work uh, compared to the regular way, and kind of trying to do this because the uh, Firecracker 400 is in a couple weekends uh, or a couple weeks uh, maybe maybe a month or so away from the preliminaries for that one with the, the first two heat events I think the week of July 12th through July 13th Uh, so want to be able to uh, take advantage of that Um, and might be might be on mobile for that one so I'm have to look at um seeing if i uh bring my controller or figure out a way to have my wheel with me during uh while that happens but um um definitely be interesting to see if i could pull that one off but you know the firecracker 400 the uh bring it back with eraser gg parker kligman landon castle's deal sure that dale jr is going to try to get into that because he said uh in the promos for the past videos that this would be a sim racing event that he'd attempt um you know, for the rest of his sim racing career, I think. So um, be able to hopefully have a shot against, uh, you know, racing against Dale Jr. Or, you know, possibly another Cup Series star like Kyle Busch. You know, Kyle Busch did this one, I think, too. Uh, I don't know if he made it out of the heat race uh, that he was in, but he was definitely in it. And definitely would be awesome to be able to uh, compete against, you know, somebody of uh, that caliber and that talent uh, there. So um, this week, Though I mean, of all, all the events, uh, you know, coming up, if I can filter it by you know, upcoming races for uh, ovals, let's see here, fixed races, uh, we got cars tour in North Wilkesboro that might be interesting. Oh, the 87s at Michigan 2009 edition with uh, the before the repave, so that might be interesting there. Uh, Arca Menard's series at Las Vegas Cup fixed series okay so it's still the old schedule oh no uh cup fixed at sonoma uh the uh historic circuit so with the inner loop or the um you know not the short shoot aka the one with the turn that had tommy kindle uh with the flat tire back in 91 Tie back to that uh gen 4 fixed uh at Michigan International Speedway, the current configuration there, so with the repave uh there on the road side of things, pull that up real quick. Uh we got Mazda MX5 at Charlotte Roval, Radical Racers at Road America, uh the uh I'm trying to see this series because the Mission challenge, trying to see which one is that. Oh, Porsche Missionar at Road America this week. Uh or Laguna Seca. sorry, uh then uh the Formula Fords rookie series at Laguna Seca. Uh the Toyota GR cars at um VIR. And then you've got uh open wheel see Formula IR at Okayama Circuit, that might be interesting. Uh there and then you have uh see G T four at Olton Park, um uh, that might be interesting as well. DT3 Ferrari, at Watkins International, Watkins Glen International with the boot. So that might be fun as well. So there's definitely a lot of opportunities this week on iRacing. Hopefully maybe I can try to do a test run or something like that uh, while I'm on mobile here. But uh, yeah, I'll definitely see what uh, later later this year, especially with the Firecracker 400 coming up, try to start making prep uh, for that so I can try to actually uh, qualify in at least from the heat to the... I guess, qual because you have the heat, and then you have the elimination qualifying, and then the I think the real event, and then there's a consolation. So it's probably going to be a little bit of prep for that. I've got to do some research and see what I need to do from last time in terms of setup, I guess, to make sure I can make it in. But that should be fun. And, you know, that's also... Uh, Got a lot of prize money as well, so um, that might be fun uh, to be able to compete for that for a little bit of bragging rights, and also I think if you actually do win that one, there's a big trophy that comes with that, so it would be fun to uh, have that and then brag about that along with the Indy 500 and be the only one, since they only run two officially to be the only one that has won the Indy 500 on iRacing and Firecracker 400, a legitimate paid private sim racing event be able to do that so that might be interesting and you know hopefully i'm able to get into it so we'll see a couple couple weeks a uh, month or two so a uh, month and a half so we'll see but yeah that's that's it for sim racing segment here this week and of course you know as always when i do stream you can follow on twitch tv slash uclr2 and go on there and see you know all my streams and everything and uh see you know uh, my driving style you know very cool calm and collected and um you know i don't say much but you know there are times when i do and that's you know sometimes sometimes it happens you know it's just the heat of the moment that's how it is but uh that's where i'll have my twitch of course um my twitter uh at jp huffine of course see you all know, my takes see you all know, my opinions we'll post the show there we'll make sure to tag tommy kendall in there so you can share the show as well and everything go on there at jp huffine uh, on twitter and of course um actually i mean i'll have some takes there and uh, wanted to briefly bring up the fact that there's a possibility that the Jacksonville Jaguars may play at the Daytona International Speedway, uh, in the near future, in the next couple of years, as they renovate TIA Bank Field. Um, and that might be a really interesting combination there. Uh, and actually, as if you've been following that storyline, there's been some, uh, reports of you know where they would go whether it be at the speedway or where they go to gainesville at the gators stadium there or they go to orlando and uh daytona might actually make the most sense because logistically uh it's the easiest one to get to All you do is go south on 985 there's plenty of lanes plenty of uh space there if you go through gainesville got to go through highway 301 you got to go through a bunch of hick towns that uh they purposely uh take the speed limit down to 35 and, you know, speed trap you there with the, uh, the sheriff and everything. So I experienced that many, well, I didn't actually get the ticket, but, you know, having to go through that process of slowing down, speeding up, slowing down, speeding up in Gainesville over my four four and a half years there. So, um, definitely don't want to do that. And having about 15,000 people going down that way to Gainesville to see a game every or every other Sunday, uh, sounds like a pretty bad time in terms of traffic. So wouldn't do that orlando too far so i think uh daytona um is the best opportunity for that if they end up having to play outside of jacksonville uh there so makes the most sense logistically and you know i think um, they have the infrastructure to make it happen as well you know, playing on the front stretch grass. And plus, expand the fan base outside of Jacksonville a little bit. You know, branch over more into Central Florida, which they have a presence, but it's not as big as the Bucks or the Dolphins. So, I think, you know, the Jags' run of success that they're going to have with Trevor Lawrence and Doug Peterson and uh, company, I think, uh, it's opportunity to have if they end up do um, having to play outside of Jacksonville potentially in Daytona so that should be interesting there just want to give my take on that uh, but uh, it would be a great combination and you know definitely a lot of collab between Jacksonville and the NASCAR in Daytona looking forward to that if it happens uh, but you know there's that of course uh, and then our YouTube channel which will have uh, the Tommy Kendall interview here and uh, This episode, have it on Gripshire Podcast, at Gripshire Podcast on YouTube. So definitely take a look at that on there and definitely see, you know, all, both of our faces. And, of course, Tommy Kendall's there. So definitely look at that. But, yeah, subscribe and, you know, follow, like, comment, and subscribe on our page there. So, yeah, of course, you know, Phil, thanks for having me on, of course, again this week. And, of course, glad we got to talk to Tommy Kendall. A lot of great conversation there. I think probably the best, you know, racing guest that we've had on there you know um and you know someone that you know we've had a couple of guests on here that are directly from the racing industry i can tell you i feel like this one was definitely best one we've done uh, and definitely learned a lot of great stories from him and definitely learned a lot of things uh, you know in general about his career and you know his backstory and everything so glad we were able to uh, finally have it on uh for that so um yeah appreciate it man
0: Absolutely man. Uh thank you. Your questions had Tommy thinking. So there you go. I mean, you waited a while but you brought him out. You brought out the heat and um you know, fact I made it through, I'm I'm glad. I don't know how I did it, but then it's the same way as I did with Ralph Sheen, but uh to have Tommy Kendall on is has been a dream. Uh, because of never really being able to be voiced, I've talked to him on the socials, but it's like to actually have a chance to talk to him as a guest is, uh, an honor and a privilege. Uh, I think I'm going to be flying the rest of this week cause it was a fun, we had fun did a great job there uh he was uh open and told us a bunch of stories and a bunch of things that even he'd never told before so definitely something you want to listen to uh if you do listen to gsp then it's no big deal but basically anywhere uh you get podcasts you can get the podcast um i'll be on the grid talk probably this weekend for f for the canadian grand prix race uh recap but um other than that uh you can follow me at PG Matthew twenty eight on Twitter. You can follow me at Philip G Matthew twenty eight on Insta. Uh, definitely follow our YouTube page, uh, Gripster Podcast, at and then we're on Twitter at Pod as well. So um, follow, like, subscribe the whole bit, and uh, we will be back next week, post Father's Day edition of uh, the GSP to talk about Road America. Uh, for IndyCar, Canadian Grand Prix, and then um, preview uh, NASCAR Cup and Xfinity at Nashville, Trucks at Mid-Ohio, along with a bunch of other racing series, including IMSA coming back for the six hours at the Glen uh, next week. So we'll get in all that. Uh, Thank you for listening to GSP, and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care.